This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. This is the final Hello, Old Sports podcast of the 2020 year. And it is the third in the series of three in memoriam episodes in which we commemorate the lives and careers of the many sports figures who passed away in the year 2020. I am joined, as always, by my co-host and brother, Andrew Newman. This is Dan Newman. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing well, Dan. Um, As we're recording this, it's Christmas Eve. We're actually not in the same place, but we're in the same county. Dan is down at my parents' house and I'm recording from my apartment. Just figured it's still easier to do it in our in our usual setups. But I'll be heading down there as soon as we're done here to begin our holiday festivities such as they are. I guess we'll just since we are recording this with another week in 2020, I guess if somebody of significance in the sports world passes away in the next week we'll just cover them briefly at the start of our next episode which will be about something else or we can hop on real quick if it's between because i won't have to post this until the 30th so so we can do that also but yes we don't want anybody who is passes away in the next week hopefully there won't be anybody but we don't want anybody who passes away in the next week to lose out on their commemoration on our podcast so It is our hope that when we stop recording today that this will be exhaustive and that there won't be anybody else that dies in the next week that we have to add to the list. But if that happens, then we will certainly, one way or another, make time to honor them. We certainly can't rule it out, unfortunately, the way this year has gone. Absolutely. Before we start, just a few items of housekeeping. First of all, I want to once again thank all of our colleagues on the Sports History Network who joined us for brief segments in either this episode or either of the last two to discuss an athlete or multiple athletes that passed away in the year 2020. We enti- we encourage you to go to sportshistorynetwork.com to check out all of the great podcast offerings on the Sports History Network. We'd like to also remind you all to get in touch with the show either via email at helloworldsports at gmail.com or through our Facebook page, Hello Old Sports Podcast. For those of you who follow the show on Facebook, we'd like to encourage you to interact with the page in one way or another. Give us a like or a comment or something like that. And when we say a like, a like on one of our posts, because the more that folks interact with the Facebook page, the more likely the posts are to appear, not just in your news feed, but in everybody's feed. So If you're looking for something you can do, please take a minute, go in, comment on a post, like a post, post on the Facebook page, something like that. That'll increase our visibility among our followers. Also, of course, like, uh, give us a five-star review, uh, subscribe on your podcast app of choice. And if you can write us a brief review, tell us what you like about the podcast. And as we enter the year 2021, if you have any ideas for topics that you'd like to see covered in future shows, please do drop us a line with that information as well. Andrew, did you have anything to add before we went ahead and got started here? 
I was going to say, we'll have to throw some polls up there in my experience with my other show. Uh, yes. Polls for a while on my uh, unsportsmanlike conduct and then uh, split decision page. I was posting polls that were just nonsense. Like it was three responses of how excited are you for tonight's show? And it was like very excited, really excited and totally excited just to be dumb. And people voted on it just as a joke. So I think if we get some sincere polls up there, we'll get some conversations going. So we'll make sure we can think of that maybe in 2021, uh, just some sort of sports history related polls or things like that. Absolutely. And I think that's maybe one more thing we should plug real quick. If you want to hear even more of Andrew, you can check and occasionally me as a guest as well. Uh, check out Andrew uh, seven to nine Eastern, the split decision with Andrew Newman on Facebook and on Facebook live. So you can check that out. And obviously it not only is streaming live on Monday nights from seven to nine, but also is available archived whenever you want to pull it up. If you're not able to listen from seven to nine on Mondays. So Lots of exciting stuff coming up in 2021 on the podcast. We're hoping also to get some guests on, whether it's uh, friends of ours or just folks with a general interest in sports history. So with that, why don't we go ahead and get started? Okay. Whitey Ford, born in 1928, died on October 21st. Considered by many to be the greatest pitcher in Yankees history, Ford was known for his cockiness and swagger and for his ability to win big games. A six-time World Series champion, Ford holds the record for all-time wins by a Yankee pitcher, as well as the record for consecutive scoreless innings in a World Series, which was a record he previously been held by Babe Ruth when he broke it. His best year in 1961, when he led the league in wins and was named both Cy Young Award winner and World Series MVP. It's funny, it hadn't really occurred to me until I was reading through the script for this episode that the best pitcher in Yankee history and the best pitcher in Mets history passed away just within a couple of months of each other. They weren't really contemporaries. Ford was a full 15 to 16 years older than Tom Seaver was. And by the time Tom Seaver broke onto the scene with the Mets, the best years of Whitey Ford's career had really come to an end. But sort of these two New York pitching icons, one a lefty, one a righty, one a Met, one a Yankee, both passed away during the fall and late summer and fall of 2020. Whitey Ford, I think, is somebody who maybe gets slightly overestimated in the public eye as far as his numbers are concerned. He's the all-time Yankee win leader, but he actually has fewer innings pitched than all but 13 Hall of Fame pitchers. There were a lot of seasons where Whitey Ford's numbers were maybe not what you would think they would be. And the big reason for that was Casey Stengel had this approach to pitching that was sort of unique even for the time and that he would hold Ford out. Ford would miss his turn in the rotation. He'd be held back for an extra couple of days to make sure that he was able to pitch against the Yankees top rivals in the American league. So you wouldn't see Ford pitching often against uh, the St. Louis Browns or against the Philadelphia and later Kansas city athletics. He would be held out for the Detroit's or the Boston's or some of those teams. And so there were a lot of years. So 
starting in 1958, you have 29, 29, and 29 starts for Whitey Ford, and those were Stengel's last three years. And that's in an era of generally four-man rotation. So that's those sound like close to full seasons today, but you know that would it would be closer to forty back then than a normal starting pitcher, especially one of Whitey Ford's caliber, would have as regular starts. And that's evidenced by the fact that in '61, when Ralph Houck takes over, 39, 37, 37, 36, 36, he starts 36 games at the age of 36 in 1965, and he didn't have that many starts any one year under Stengel. The closest he came under Stengel was 33, and that was 10 years earlier in 1955. So Ford most likely would have had more innings pitched and more wins had it not been for this strategy of Casey Stengel. And in fact, his 220-win seasons are in 1961 and 1963 under Ralph Houck with 25 and four in 61 and then 24 and seven in 63. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned Ford relative to Seaver and they're obviously they're the deaths being so close to each other and the, the position they occupy in sort of New York sports lore is as with Seaver, it's inarguable with Ford. It might be arguable, but the best pitchers on their franchise's history was such a different thing because Seaver is sort of, the figure of that team, you know, the 69 Mets and the early 70s teams, the stars were the pitching. It was the pitching specifically Seaver, whereas with Ford, he was the best pitcher on a team that's famous for its hitters. You know, guys like Mantle and Maris for those few years. And obviously Yogi Berra was there at the same time. When you think of those teams, those are the guys you think of. So when you talk about Ford and, you know, you mentioned sort of played most of the early most of his prime with Stangle, although he had some good years in the early 60s after Stangle was gone. The sort of legend gets written in the postseason statistics, which at the time just meant the World Series. Um, actually came up and, and had a start in the World Series in 1950 before he missed the next few years for military service. You don't think of him being on the team that early, but he did start a game in that World Series against the uh, Phillies and went eight and two thirds uh innings without allowing a run and the Yankees earn earned run and the Yankees won. And then starting in 53, you know, he was starting two or three times in every one of those world series. And you just kind of go down the records and the ERA um, 53. He had a, a rough series, lost one of, you know, didn't get a win, lost a start 4.5 ERA, but then in the, in 55 in a losing effort, 2.12 ERA won both of his starts. 56 was one and one. 57 was one and one, but had a 1.13 ERA. And then rough series in 58. And then in the early 60s, especially 2 and 0 in the 60 World Series with a zero ERA. 2 and 0 in the 61 World Series with a zero ERA. And he was named the MVP. Started three times in the 62 World Series that the Yankees won. So, you know when it it was true then and it's true now, which is that no matter how much you hit, when you get to the World Series, you need starting pitching. And I guess now you would say you need pitching in general, starting pitching and bullpen. But that was sort of where he made his legend and, and made his bones as the ace of the Yankee staff was in those World Series. One of the reasons that Casey Stengel, and there were a lot of reasons, one of the reasons, though, that he was so criticized in and 
eventually fired after the 1960 World Series was the fact that he held Ford out to did not start Ford in game one, which would have made it possible for Ford to pitch three games in that World Series. And I, I believe it was I want to see who started that game seven. It was Bob Turley who started that game for the Yankees in 1960 game seven, the game that they ended up losing to the pirates on the Mazeroski home run, but Ford had pitched in game six, a complete game shutout. And then I believe that means he also would have pitched in game number three, which was a 10, nothing Yankee shutout. And yeah, another complete game shutout. So Ford pitches two complete game shutouts in the 1960 world series, but is unavailable even to come out of the bullpen in the final game because he had just pitched the game before. The other thing I would note about Ford is that he's also become famously known for his cavorting and drinking and so forth with Billy Martin and Mickey Mantle, Billy Martin, a tragic figure and Mantle sort of a tragic figure in his own right. And Ford always said that, well, he was a guy who liked the nightlife and liked to go out and have fun. He always said that as a pitcher, he was always able to keep it in control. He didn't drink the day before his starts. So unlike Martin or Mantle, Ford was a party guy, but a guy maybe without the demons that Billy Martin or Mickey Mantle had. The evidence of that is that we're talking about him today as having passed away instead of Mickey Mantle, who passed away in 1995, and Billy Martin, what was it, 89? And I know it was an accident, but it was an accident that had to do with his alcohol abuse. Um, yes. Yet, you know, with Ford, it's like, okay, if you don't pitch the next day, if you, you know, if, if it, as long as it's not the night before you pitch, you can at least justify it for the most part. I remember when I was in college and I knew some people on the baseball team. One of them was one of my roommates. When they'd have like a weekend series in their conference, they would have rules like, okay, if we have a game the next day, nobody's going to drink or party or anything. But if the guy who started on Friday, which was their ace, after he pitched, the rules didn't apply to him because he wasn't going to play the rest of the series. So, you know, you mentioned uh, the way Stangle used Ford, and it kind of reminds me of, even though it was half a century earlier, the guy that Stangle always sort of looked to as a managerial, uh, you know, uh, protege. He was the managerial protege of mentor was the word I was looking for there. John McGraw. John McGraw, who that's how he used Matthewson. And sometimes it worked, but sometimes it didn't where he, you know, everybody would expect it to be Matthewson and then he wouldn't use Matthewson. And then sort of the last thing I will say on the, the sort of 1960 and Stangle and all of that, which is there's a lot of the Yankees have always been sort of criticized for firing Casey Stangle at the end of the 60 season or not bringing him back. It's like, look at all the success they were having and they got rid of him just because he was old. And there's something to that. The Yankees have, have always been, especially then, a very bloodless organization, sort of, in terms of that. But then two years later, he's the Mets manager, and every story about him as the Mets manager is basically that he didn't know what was going on. Falling asleep so, in the dugout in the dugout and all that stuff. Ex exactly. So, you know, Ford then after that retires, and I believe the 67 was his last year, and then transitions into that elder statesman. Yankee role where he's there all the time and, you know, was certainly up until very recently at all the old timers day games um, towards the end was having to be taken out on a golf cart, but sort of one of the last surviving 
remember growing up in the 90s and listening or watching Old Timers Day and they get to the very end. And this is after Madeline DiMaggio had passed away. But sort of the hammer at the end was, okay, here comes Rizzuto and Reggie and Yogi and Whitey. And that was sort of the like upper crust of the guys who were coming out at that point. And, the Hall of Famers. Yeah. And Reggie obviously was much younger and is still around. But now all those guys are uh, are gone. Casey Stengel called him his Banty Rooster, and he was probably one of the biggest big game pitchers in the history of baseball and certainly in the history of World Series play. You know, I grew up in uh, Long Island, uh, not too far from Yankee Stadium. I think half of them are here today. And uh, I was a Yankee fan, I guess, since I was five or six years old. And uh, to think when I was 21 years old, I'd be playing with DiMaggio and Barra uh, against guys like Stan Musial, Roy Campanella. It's uh, just something I can't uh, fathom. It's just been great. I have a lot of people I want to thank. First, the teammates. Fellas like Mickey and Maris and Barra for scoring all those runs. Let's move on to another baseball legend and another guy who won a couple of World Series, and that's Joe Morgan, who was born in 1943 and passed away on October 11th. Morgan played for five teams in his career, but is best known as the second baseman for the Big Red Machine teams in Cincinnati in the 1970s. The Reds won the World Series in 1975 and 1976, and Morgan was named MVP each of those years, MVP of baseball, MVP of the National League. Morgan was a great all-around player, winning five gold gloves at second base and finishing in the top 10 in stolen bases. He is fifth all-time in walks and was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1990. Morgan later spent several years serving on the Hall's board of directors. You know, the thing I'll say about Joe Morgan and just in researching if this, I didn't realize how long he was an Astro before he went to the Reds. I'd always sort of probably oh, yeah, started his career with the Astros, but I thought that was oh maybe he was there two or three years before he went to the Reds and had his great years. But he came up in I mean, came up in 63. His first full year with the with the Astros was 65, and he was there all the way through 71 before going to Cincinnati. So he had some really good years and was an all-star a couple of times before he even went to Cincinnati and was a vital cog in that big red machine. He was, and then stuck around for a little bit longer, went back to Houston, and then actually one of the most interesting teams, and we'll talk a little more about his Reds ears and just sort of his heyday in a minute, but in the second to last year of his career, he ended up on the Phillies in 1983. And that was a Phillies team that lost the world series to the Baltimore Orioles four to one. And it was sort of a mini reunion of the big red machine. They had Morgan at second base at the age of 39, Pete Rose at first base at the age of 42. Pete Rose played 151 games at the age of 42 for the Phillies. And then they had Tony Perez as sort of a utility man, pinch hitter, who himself was 41 years of age and had about close to 300 plate appearances. 
in the lineup, in addition to those former Reds, they had Mike Schmidt at 33. They had Gary Maddox at 33. Only one guy in their sort of regular lineup under the age of 30. And their ace pitcher was Steve Carlton, who was also 38. Garnered them the nickname of the Weez Kids. The 1950 Phillies, 30 years before, had been the Wiz Kids. And these were the Weez Kids. And so sort of a really interesting team that Morgan finishes his career on as, or I guess he played one more year after that, but a team with a lot of really old guys that almost won a world series. Yeah, that's, and I, you know, this obviously, but when we were uh, cleaning out my grandfather, my grandparents' house, when they were moving into an apartment a few years ago, I came across a program from the 1983 World Series from one of the games at Veterans Stadium that my uncle had gone to, had come up from, come down from his college in upstate New York to go to and must have given my grandfather. So it was a, you know, it was a World Series program from whatever one of the games would have been played at Veterans Stadium. And I uh, have a friend who's an Orioles fan and they obviously won that World Series. So I sent him that or I gave him that program. But um, yeah, that 83 Phillies team where it's like, you know, I, that always confused me as a kid. It was like Pete Rose left the Reds and went to the Phillies, but then he's back with the Reds when he breaks the hits record. And then there's Montreal in there somewhere. It was always very confusing to me. But, um, you know, obviously, Joe Morgan, what you're talking about really is the big red machine era from the time he gets to Cincinnati. He was an all star every year he was in Cincinnati from 72 to 79. And that, the, you know, pump just from a number standpoint, what stands out to me is how much he walked even in an era when that wasn't, it was certainly important, but it wasn't a be all and end all thing at over a hundred walks. Almost every year he was with Cincinnati as high as 132 walks in 1975. And you know, when you're talking about a middle infielder in that era, you want them to get on base and, you know, have some speed on the base paths and some of the bigger hitters can get him around and get him in. So he was sort of ideal in that lineup that had a lot of big hitters. Otherwise, I think what a great player he was gets sometimes forgotten because I think people associate that big red machine team first and foremost with Pete Rose, Mm -hmm. which is understandable. And then maybe with Johnny bench and, I think that sometimes Morgan maybe historically gets a little bit lost in the shuffle. I remember in 2000 or in 1999 when they did the all century team, Rogers Hornsby and Jackie Robinson were the two second basemen that were selected. Now, obviously you can't quibble with Jackie Robinson. And if you look at the numbers, you really can't quibble too much with Rogers Hornsby either, but Morgan really is just was a great player, you know, the probably the best player in baseball for a couple years in the seventies and 75 Sparky Anderson says that the season Morgan puts up is the best season he's ever seen by any one player in any one season. And then, you know, doesn't do anything particularly monumental in the postseason, but is definitely one of the leaders. And then kind of sort of like we we're talking about with some of these Lombardi guys who were ambassadors for their team mm-hmm. as the years and the decades went on. 
Joe Morgan always seemed to me, and maybe this was because he was in broadcasting and he was always just sort of around, but Morgan was a guy who was always a really strong advocate for the historical legacy of those big red machine teams that he'd played on. Comes a throw to third. Rose hits a dirty safe, and there goes Morgan down to second. And the Reds have the lead four to three. As Joe Morgan blooped a base hit into center field, scoring Griffey from third. The throw from Lynn to third was too late. Rose hitting the dirt there, and on the throw to third, going down to second is Joe Morgan. He was the MVP of the, of the league the two years they won the World Series in 75 and 76. And those are considered the two, two of the most dominant teams, especially 76, in the history of baseball. And I won't go through all of his numbers, but those two years consecutively, he had 327 and 320 with on-base percentages of 466 and 444. So think about those on-base percentages getting on base nearly half the time both of those years. Or excuse me. Yeah, that was, yeah, oh, on base percentage. Yep. I wanted to make sure I was quoting the right stat. When you talk, yeah, he, he then goes into broadcasting and, you know, was always very strongly an advocate of, of the dominance of those teams. That's kind of how I remember him was being specifically the Sunday night baseball guy with uh, John Miller, just sort of hearing his voice reminds me of those guys who did Sunday night baseball for so long. I think towards the last 15 years or so, he became a very outspoken critic of sort of the new analysis and sabermetrics and stuff and unfortunately didn't do that in a way that indicated he really understood them at all so there was a bit of a cranky old man aspect to it as it regards sort of the new ways of doing things in baseball that he came across as smug a lot yeah, there was, and there was a website that was very successful and wasn't specifically about him but was more going after sort of sports journalism that they perceived as lazy and sort of old manish, and it was called firejoemorgan.com. So it shouldn't take away from his playing career and the kind of person he was and how dominant he was. But sadly, there was a little too much of that towards the end that I think to a certain, I don't even want to say generation, but a certain subset of sort of very online and numbers heavy sports personalities. He was sort of the, the enemy in that regard. But, um, and then he did that whole thing a few years back where he basically sent an email to, I think this was related to the Veterans Committee. It could have been the the regular Hall of Fame balloting. I think it was the Veterans Committee. We can double check on that. But he basically sent an email. He was he was vice chairman of the Hall of Fame. I think we actually said that in the introduction or that he yep. was on the board of directors. He sent an email to some group of influential voters basically urging them not to let any of the steroid era guys into the hall of fame or anybody who was suspected of using steroids. And he used his official hall of fame email address. And obviously in the context of a 40 or 50 year career in baseball, that's a very small thing, but I think it sort of contributed to the perception that you're talking about. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the note here and it's long, but it's, I have the, the letter he sent. It says, 
We hope the day never comes when known steroid users are voted into the Hall of Fame. They cheated. Steroid users don't belong here. Players who failed drug tests, admitted using steroids, or were identified as users in Major League Baseball's investigation into steroid abuse, known as the Mitchell Report, should not get in. Those are the three criteria that many of the players and I think are right. It still occurs to me that anyone who took body-altering chemicals in a deliberate effort to cheat the game we love, not to mention they cheated the current and former players and fans too, don't belong in the Hall of Fame, and it goes on like that. So it's not even an un... He's got a right to say that, and it's not even a, a point that I think doesn't have some merit, but just there was a very... it was That was not an anomaly. That was sort of the pattern of... Uh, it fits in the pattern of the way he conducted himself in terms of a lot of the modern goings on in baseball for a 20 year period. But just to close on a positive note, let's make it clear. And obviously the contributions of Jackie Robinson to society are something that's a whole other conversation to have. But when you talk about on field, Morgan is at worst, probably the second best second baseman of all time. So and not a fringe Hall of Famer or a guy who should only be remembered as this isn't a guy who's like, oh, yeah, he's a little better than maybe we thought. No, he is yeah. one of, if not the best second baseman of all time. And just the one last thing I want to say about how good a fielder he was. That's an era where a his home park and b most of the parks on the road were AstroTurf. And most of them were AstroTurf with no base paths, just the little cutouts by the bases. It is incredibly hard, especially artificial turf then which was astroturf which was carpet rolled on cement think about the hops balls take on that and he was a gold glover all those years and played in close to 150 games every year which is another accomplishment when you're playing every day on astroturf why don't we move on to a hall of famer in a different sport All right. Fred Dean, born in 1952, passed away on October 14th. A four-time Pro Bowler at the defensive end, Dean began his career with the Chargers, but was traded to the 49ers midway through the 1981 season. Dean recorded 12 sacks in 11 games with the 49ers and went on to win the first Super Bowl in team's history. In 1983, Dean recorded a career-high 17-and-a-half sacks, including six in one game against the New Orleans Saints. He retired after winning a second Super Bowl with the 49ers in 1984 and was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2008. When you think of the 49ers of the 80s, you think, obviously, first and foremost about Joe Montana, later Jerry Rice, Roger Craig, Dwight Clark, and... And Ronnie Lott, yeah, but most of the guys you think of are offensive players. And when you think of the defense, you think mostly of Ronnie Lott. But Fred Dean coming to the 49ers in the middle of 1981 really was a turning point because it gave them that anchor that they needed on the defense. And he didn't stick around for the whole 1980s. He was only there for 81 and then again for not again, but he was only there in 81 and then through 84 so he won two championship brings with them but his coming to the team midway through that 81 season is really seen as a turning point in fact in november they went to la to play against the rams their longtime division rivals and fred dean has 4.5 four and a half sacks in that game and it was the first time that there it was a home game i should say it was the first time that the 49ers had ever beaten the rams at candlestick park which had been around for probably close to 10 years at that point. And they'd played every year since they were in the same division. So 
he provided the turnaround for that 49er defense that kind of matched the prowess of the offense on the way to winning all those championships. 12 sacks in 11 games for the 49ers that year when he came over. Crazy. You know, a year, that was the last year that sacks weren't officially counted because that was LT's rookie year. And then after that, they started to count them and make them a marketing thing. But this kind of struck me based on books I've read about other teams and things, there is almost always, when you're talking about a dynasty or even a championship team, there's almost always a guy, the first championship year or before the first championship year that comes in as an established veteran from somewhere else. And, you know, isn't necessarily the superstar, but fills a big role as sort of a a veteran and, you know, a guy that doesn't make a lot of, problems kind of comes in and is a, is a firm presence among the team and all the guys on the team will recognize how important it was that they brought that guy in. And for the 49ers, that 81 season, it certainly seems like Fred Dean. I think that that is absolutely right. I think that turning point, his hall of fame profile said, says quote, his quickness, speed, and strength made him one of the league's most feared pass rushers during his 141 game career. Although the sack did not become an official NFL statistic until 1982. If numbers tallied by the teams were included with his official sack count, Dean's career sack total would stand near 100. So great player and a deserving hall of famer. Why don't we move on? And there is another pro football hall of famer by the name of Herb Adderley, who was born in 1939 and passed away on October 30th. Adderley starred at Michigan state as a halfback, but converted to cornerback after joining Vince Lombardi's green Bay Packers in 1961. Adderley won five NFL championships in green Bay, including the first two super bowls. He finished his career with the Dallas Cowboys, where he won an additional Super Bowl in 1971. Adderley played in five Pro Bowls and was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1980. So this is what the third of the 60s Packers defensive guys that we're uh, we're talking about. Obviously, the little wrinkle here where he also then went right from the 60s Packers to the beginning of the Doomsday Cowboys and picked up another ring there. Probably one of the only guys to have titles with both of those franchises it was sort of the, you look at the years he was an all pro and they were the years the Packers won championships, 62, 63, 66, 65, and then second team all pro 64, 67, 69. So during the height of those teams was the sort of anchor of the back end of that defense, the cornerback position. And, you know, we talked about this before where you think of those teams and you don't necessarily think of sort of the passing game aspect, but it wasn't the thirties. There was plenty of teams who threw the ball and threw the ball well. And having a corner like Adderley, especially with the Packers who had a lead a lot. So the other teams had to throw was, uh, you know, was obviously a game changer. Started off as a halfback and was drafted by the Packers and Lombardi was very stubborn and didn't want to move him from running back. But unfortunately they had two running backs on those Packer teams in the early sixties by the name of Jim Taylor and another gentleman who we'll talk about in a few minutes, Paul Horning. Only when Jess Whittington, who was one of the other defensive backs on the Packers 
only when he gets injured in 1961 does Lombardi give Herb Adderley a shot at cornerback, and Adderley performs so well that Lombardi keeps him at cornerback and moves Whittington to one of the safety positions. Adderley is an all-pro in 65, 67, and 66, so three years, which are the three years that the Packers win three titles in a row in the mid and late 1960s, scores the first touchdown off of an interception in Super Bowl history in the second half of Super Bowl II when he intercepts Daryl LaMonica and brings the ball all the way back for a touchdown. Fellas, I says, look, we got 30 more minutes this year. I said, let's give it to the old man. Let's play the last 30 for the old man. That's about all I said. The message was heard loud and clear. Number 26, cornerback Herb Adderley, keyed a second-half onslaught that buried the Raiders 33-14 and gave Lombardi a victory in the last game he ever coached for the Packers. The World Championship Award he earned now bears the name the Vince Lombardi Trophy in his memory. Clashes a little bit with Phil Bankston, who had been the defensive coordinator and was Lombardi's successor as head coach. So then he goes to Dallas, where he teams up with another legendary cornerback, uh, Mel Renfro, with the Dallas Cowboys, wins a Super Bowl in 1971, but never wears his Cowboy championship ring. He says, I'm not a Cowboy, I'm a Green Bay Packer, and never never will wear his Cowboys Super Bowl ring and wants to be remembered only as a Green Bay Packer for the rest of his life. Um, yeah, I was going to give that quote. The quote I see here is, I'm the only man with a Dallas Cowboys championship ring who doesn't wear it. I'm a Green Bay Packer. Another interesting st- uh, thing I saw here, because he got that extra one with the Cowboys, he's a, one of only four players who's got four NFL players who's got six championships. Did you see that? I saw the stat. I'm trying to think now that would have to also include, I would imagine pre-Super Bowl pre-Super Bowl. Yeah. So I, I, one of them is easy and two of them are guys. He was a teammate with, so they got ones with the Packers as well and then had to get another one somewhere else. Okay. Well, I know that Forrest Greg also was on that Dallas team that won the championship. Yep. He's one of them. Oh, and you know who another one is, is um, fuzzy Thurston was on the Colts team in 58. Very impressive. And then third one. Is the third one one that I would have any chance of getting? I would really hope so. Six championships. Yes. Oh, Brady, of course. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, my wife uh, My wife will have me sleeping on the lawn if I don't remember Tom Brady. It's like a wife. You, Tom Brady, you should know the answer to. But anyway, um, yeah, you're probably the only one in history who ever got him last in that trivia question. Yeah, I got Fuzzy Thurston before I got Tom Brady. <laughs> so when I, I just Adderley, as I'm looking, I didn't realize it was from Philadelphia, went to Northeast High School. It says after retirement, he went and broadcaster actually for football for the Eagles, but also for Temple University. Was an assistant at Temple for a little while and was with the Philadelphia Bell of the World Football League as an assistant coach for a bit. So went back to Philadelphia despite having the football roots in uh, Green Bay specifically, but also in Dallas a little bit. And his time as an assistant with the Philadelphia Bell, Willie Wood, his teammate, was the head coach of that team. Which I guess makes sense. So 
we'll move on and I will read this one and then let you sort of comment on it. This was not a story I was familiar with before this. And I, I know you are Travis Roy died on October 29th, born in 1975, died on October 29th after complications from surgery, a star high school hockey player in Maine. Roy was recruited to Boston university to play hockey. Only 11 seconds into his first ever shift, Roy suffered a devastating injury after a collision and was a quadriplegic for the remainder of his life. He later returned to school to complete his degree and was a motivational speaker for the remainder of his life. He is the only player whose number has been retired by the BU hockey team. I believe the only other number that's been retired is that of the head coach, Jack Parker, who was with the team for, I think, probably close to 30 years. I, I hadn't, you know, wasn't familiar with the story. And I, I I know going to PU, I'm sure you'll talk about how you became familiar with it. I did watch the clip because there's an ESPN, some sort of out. It's not ESPN. It's the local Boston sports affiliate, but it's all, it's like an outside the lines feature almost. And they show the clip of the game and he goes to, to check somebody into the boards behind the goal and he misses him or doesn't make great contact with him and kind of goes parallel to the ice and hits his head basically directly into the, into the lower part of the boards, you know, the non, the non glass part. And when you look at it on replay, you go, Oh, I can see where that would be a devastating injury, but it's also one where if you, you could see a guy do that and get right back up and not think anything of it. So it just shows you how a lot of that stuff is a matter of inches. And, you know, he goes to the ice and is pretty quickly, it's clear it's serious. He can't move. And, outcome all the, the trainers and doctors and things like that. So it, it is that quick. Absolutely. And we talked when we did the 1920 baseball episode, we talked about Ray Chapman being killed in the being killed after being hit by a pitch and about how there aren't a lot of deaths or really serious injuries. And we mentioned Dale Earnhardt, and obviously there have been some football players that were paralyzed during games. Uh, there's a story that I won't go too much into now, but there was a player on the St. Louis Hawks in the fifties by the name of Maurice Stokes, who hit his head on the backboard and was actually okay for three or four days. And then eventually had a really bad stroke and then was in a coma and sort of was an invalid almost for the rest of his life. A really crazy story, but Travis Roy is one of those stories. Now, I am an alumni of Boston University, and we are not what you would consider a sports powerhouse, with the exception of men's ice hockey. And BU plays in a conference called Hockey East, which is them and Boston College and Northeastern and some of the other New England area schools. It's the probably the preeminent hockey conference in the NCAA and hockey is a big deal at BU hockey is a hockey, youth hockey, amateur hockey, high school, college is a really big deal in the Boston and new England area. And having lived there for a couple of years, I can sort of testify to that again, having seen it sort of as an adult, just what a big deal it is to people. Travis Roy played hockey growing up in Maine and was heavily recruited to go to BU and his freshman year, he suited up for the opening game against North Dakota, and he 
tells a story in his book about being the day of the game and being with his teammates. And there's a picture of he and a few of his teammates outside of the arena an hour or so before the game. And there's one picture, which is on the back of his book of him in his BU uniform, getting ready for the faceoff. BU scores a goal early in the first period. And Travis Roy comes into the game. One of the other players on his line is a player named Chris Drury, who would go on to not only be a star at BU, but also ends up playing a lot of years with the Rangers and is a, a star player in the NHL. And Andrew sort of told the story 11 seconds into his first shift. He has this horrible collision and he writes in his book that he knew basically from the minute that it had happened, the, as soon as it happened, he knew that something had happened to him that had altered his life. I skated in there just as fast as I could and opposing defenseman picked up the puck and I thought, you know, I'll just deliver a big shoulder check and I just didn't hit him as squarely as I'd hoped and I lost my balance. I, I hit my head on the boards and just flopped to the ice and initially I didn't think anything up. You know, I'll get back on my hands and knees. I've fallen thousands of times. I'll get on my skates and uh, my body just wasn't responding. It was within seconds, if not a minute or two, when I realized that something very serious was wrong. I'd asked one of the assistant trainers to find my dad up in the stands because I literally knew that, that my life was, was over as I knew it, that, 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 I, was, that I was paralyzed. And, and there was something about it that it just, um, that life was going to be different. He spends a lot of time recovering and eventually comes back, comes to school, becomes sort of an inspirational figure in the annals of Boston University hockey and writes this book called 11 Seconds that is the story of his life before and after the injury. I have sort of an interesting story, which is that I, even as a BU graduate, have never been the biggest hockey fan or college hockey fan. I had friends who were much more into the BU hockey team than I was. And I had seen a copy of this book at their houses, but I never had a copy myself and it never meant quite enough to me to, to pick it up a couple of days after Travis Roy died. This is literally just a few days after he died. I was at a used bookstore in the DC area and I saw this book and I was like, this would be, I have to pick this up because it just, it, you know, it, it just seems like the right time to pick up a copy of this book. And so I spent a lot of time in used bookstores, so I know how to find out what the price is going to be. So I open up the book to the first page to see where the price is written down for the book. And right on the first page is an autograph of Travis Roy that was written in the style that he wrote after his injury, which was he would take the pen in his teeth and autograph the book. And it's very obviously his handwriting. So how this signed book from this BU hockey player made it to a used book warehouse in Rockville, Maryland, I have no idea, but there it was. And so it kind of was a very sort of fitting, touching way for me to acquire this used book as, you know, not only getting it a few days after he passed away, but also seeing that it had been autographed by him. So obviously not somebody whose historical importance is on the same level as many of the individuals that we've talked about for these last few episodes. But based on 
just the uniqueness of the story and my sort of personal now connection is probably an overstatement, but my personal interest in it, I thought it would be a good one to include. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's always interesting, especially like you probably don't, but do you remember the first time like you heard about this story? I'm assuming it was when you were at BU sometime and you just like either read about it or like, do you remember learning about it? You know, it's funny that you asked that question. And I actually learned about this story for the first time in the exact room that I am in right now, which is the, uh, the fourth bedroom, AKA office at my parents' house in New York. And I was in high school and I was chatting with one of my friends, my friend, Troy online. And he told me this story. He's like, Hey, you know, I just, and this was long. I think I was like a, this was like the middle of my junior year of high school, long before I knew anything about Travis Roy or even had BU probably hadn't even really appeared on my radar screen yet. But wow. my my friend told me, he's like, I heard the story of this hockey player who was recruited to this school and it was like a big deal. And he only made it for 11 seconds and then he was paralyzed. But as he was being carried off his dad, he had his dad by his side and he said, dad, I, this may have happened, but at least I made it. And I just remember it being this really touching story. And then a couple of years later, I got to be you and I somehow or another became aware of this story. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's the guy that my friend was talking about that night. So it's, it's weirdly enough, it was a story that I was aware of even before I ever got to be you. That is weird. That's I, I'm surprised by that. I, I don't nothing on the scale of this in terms of seriousness, but I just think about that with stuff, you know, with my own college with LaSalle, where it's like, I'm trying to remember when the first, cause I didn't know anything really about LaSalle or the basketball team's history or whatever. And I'm sometimes I've thought about like, Oh, I wonder when the first time I heard of, uh, Ken Durrett or the 67 or the 69 team that, you know, was ranked number two in the country. Like, when did I hear about that for the first time? So this, obviously I just figured I would ask that, but you knew about it, uh, before you even went to BU or, you know, decided to go to BU. So, so our next player is Jim Nielsen. Jim Nielsen was born in 1941 and passed away on November 6th. Nielsen spent 12 years as a defenseman with the New York Rangers. His teammate, Rod, Gilbert said that Nielsen, quote, defines defensemen as well as anyone who has ever played the game. The Rangers were perennial playoff participants during Nielsen's years with the team, making it to the Stanley Cup Finals in 1972. Nielsen closed his NHL career with two teams that are no longer in existence, the California Golden Seals and the Cleveland Barons. I am joined once again by Warren Rogan of the Sports Forgotten Heroes podcast. Warren, thank you again for joining us. Glad to be here. So I will admit that not only had Jim Nielsen not been on the original list that Andrew and I put together for this year-end spectacular, but Jim Nielsen actually was not somebody who I was ever even aware of. And Warren, you are in the process, I believe, of putting together a really interesting podcast about Jim Nielsen for the end of this year. And actually, by the time this airs, uh, this will probably be part of our last episode. So your your episode may actually already have, have posted by this point. So do you want to tell us a little bit, uh, not only about Jim Nielsen, but about the really cool podcast you're putting together with some members of his family? Sure. So Jim Nielsen was a stud defenseman for the New York Rangers. 
he came up during the 62-63 season, and he played with the Rangers through 73-74 and um, ultimately finished his career with the uh, Golden Seals, the Barons, and the Edmonton Oilers. Podcast I did, which I'm in the process of editing right now. I know timing's a crazy thing with, uh, with our podcasts. We, we talk about them before they hit the air. My podcast will debut on December the 29th with, uh, about Jim Nielsen. Very cool podcast. I had both of his daughters, Dana and Darcy, and his son, David, join me on the podcast, along with a great New York Ranger, Vic Hadfield, who was a captain of the Rangers when Jim played. Vic is also the first New York Ranger to score 50 goals in a season. Jim could hit. Jim was as solid a defenseman, reliable, took great pride in how he played defense. And when Eddie Jacquemin and Gilles Villemur split the Vezina Trophy for the New York Rangers, that was one of Jim's proudest moments because he took pride in the fact that he was able to help those two keep the puck out of the net. Jim was not a major scorer. He was not an offensive defenseman like we think of Bobby Orr, Brad Park, Paul Coffey, you know, the the big high-scoring defensemen of today. Jim's biggest year was 10 goals and 34 assists, but that wasn't his game. His game was hitting and keeping the guys out of the defensive zone, standing them up at the blue line. He was as solid a defenseman as had ever played, and he has one of the most unique backgrounds. Jim was raised in an orphanage. So think about that. Think about how many players in pro sports were raised in an orphanage. I can't think of very many. And He's raised in an orphanage and has this very unique background to, to boot. He was, he was an Indian, uh, indigenous. He comes up and he earns, he earns, he gets the nickname, the chief. I'm not sure you could get away with that today. Some of the way things <laughs> are not. In, our, in our politically correct society today. But he had the respect of everybody And he was so solid as a defenseman. There are many in the game, in the National Hockey League, who think that Jim Nielsen has been severely overlooked and should have 100% been enshrined in the Pro Hockey Hall of Fame. And I I believe, I don't know if this was in in speaking uh, with you previous or maybe in something that I read in doing my own research, but I believe his children are sort of really pushing for that, right? Absolutely. Um, They have written letters, you know, the, the, the Hockey Hall of Fame, like the Baseball Hall of Fame and the Football Hall of Fame and all the Halls of Fame, they all have qualifications or people vote on them. No, not qualifications, but for whatever reason, people vote for certain players and not other players. And the only reason we can, that, that we all come up with that Jim has not been inducted into the Hall of Fame is because he was not an offensive defenseman. There's really no other explanation. When you talk to Vic Hadfield, who is 
one of the great Rangers of all time. And he's sitting there saying, man, this guy has been overlooked and should be in. You need to take note. You need to take note. When he joined the Rangers, they were not a very good team. But they started to build a team. And he was one of the key cogs to help lead that team to the Stanley Cup Finals, where they ultimately lost to the Boston Bruins and Bobby Orr in six games. I mean, Jim Nielsen was good, man. He was just he was so solid. We had Warren on, I think, in the previous episode to talk about Horace Clark. You mentioned sort of remembering Horace Clark as a player when you were growing up in New York. Were you aware of Nielsen when you were a young fan? He left the Rangers for California and the Golden Seals just before I started really getting into the game. Slightly aware of him. I cannot sit here and say that I ever saw him play, but I certainly read about him. And, um, you know, his contemporaries were guys like Brad Park and Carl Brewer and Jacques Laperriere and Tim Horton. Sure, Bobby Orr was on a level by himself. Whether you're a hockey fan or not, you have most likely heard the name Bobby Orr, and it was because the guy was just this phenom. Jim Nielsen was not Bobby Orr. Jim Nielsen, however, was, you know, one level below. But Jim Nielsen played defense better than Bobby Orr did. Bobby Orr had more of an offensive game. Jim Nielsen was, he could hit, he he would block the shots, I mean, he'd stand you up at the blue line. The guy was tough. He was solid. I think that, and anybody who listens knows that Andrew and I, hockey is sort of not our top sport, but we've, we've touched on hockey certainly quite a bit uh, in the first couple of months of the podcast. But as somebody who also grew up in the New York area, I think there is definitely a push to increase awareness about those Ranger teams of the 70s and 80s. I know there have been a couple of books that have been written, that type of thing. And for somebody in my generation who was 12 years old when they finally won the Cup in 94, you think that it was just this sort of vast wasteland for 50 some odd years. And then they won the Cup finally in 94 and then, you know, whatever's happened since then. But I think it's good that there's been more of a push to increase the awareness about some of those teams that were really good in those years. They were excellent teams. You think about some of the guys that they had on those teams, Roger Bear and John Rattel and Brad Park, you know, and in the goal you had Eddie Jacumin and Gilles Villamure was his backup who was a darn good goalie. You had Vic Hadfield. I mean, these were good, if not great teams, but you know, you had you had teams like the Montreal Canadiens, and you just, I mean, man, that team was so good, the Canadiens. It, it almost wasn't fair how good they were. You know, and Jim was, like I said, he, he made a couple of all-star teams. He he finished once he was fourth in the Norris Trophy voting, once he was fifth in the Norris Trophy voting. You know, but he was playing at a time when Bobby Orr was playing. It, it's pretty hard to unseat Bobby Orr from winning a Norris trophy. Jim was good, man. He was great. He was actually, he was better than good. He was great. And on my podcast, I do a lot of stories on guys who were 
just about Hall of Famers or marginal, you know, maybe they should be there, but you could maybe see why they shouldn't. And we talk about them. And at the end of those podcasts, I'll say, look, I'm not here to stump for this guy to be in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, on this podcast, I actually do. I actually (laughs) think that Jim Nielsen is significantly overlooked, severely overlooked, and should be a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. The guy was that good. Well, Warren Rogan, thank you for coming on, not only to talk about Jim Nielsen, but in previous episodes to talk about Horace Clark and to talk about Jimmy Wynn. Check out all of the episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes, but especially the ones on the three players that we discussed and particularly the one on Jim Nielsen, which either will drop or did drop on December 29th. This will likely air on the 31st. So just a couple days earlier. Uh, Warren, thanks so much for doing this. Did you want to just uh, real quick, just sort of remind everybody where they can find the podcast? Sure. Sports Forgotten Heroes is available wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Spotify. Anywhere you get your podcasts, you can get Sports Forgotten Heroes. And like like your podcast, it is also a member of the Sports History Network. I think it's a terrific idea. I hope it takes off, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Warren, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. All right, well, let's talk about Tommy Heinsohn, who was born in 1934 and passed away on November 10th. A lifelong member of the Boston Celtics organization, Heinsohn was a part of every championship team in franchise history as either a player, coach, or broadcaster. Joining the Celtics in 1956, Heinsohn was named Rookie of the Year. In Game 7 of the NBA Finals that year against St. Louis, He scored 37 points and grabbed 23 rebounds to lead Boston to its first ever world championship. He would go on to play in the NBA finals in each of his nine seasons in the NBA. After retiring, Heinsohn coached the team for nine seasons, winning world championships in 1974 and 1976. He is a member of the basketball hall of fame as both a player and a coach. Right. And I always knew Tommy Heinsohn as the, announcer the broadcaster for the Celtics games and he would always make the the rounds on the internet as being just the biggest homer in the world but you know when you think about a guy who played for the team coached the team had been involved basically with the Celtics for as long as there's anything worth remembering about the Celtics he was there for so you know sort of the I don't even want to say the last but the most the best example of sort of just the absolute hometown guy, you know, never pretended to be, and I'll let you speak more to his playing career and things like that, but never pretended to be anything but an absolute Celtics backer on the radio or, you know, whatever the broadcast medium was just sort of embodies the Celtics as much as really anyone else does, maybe with the exception of Red Auerbach, but, you know, Heinsohn obviously stretched into this current era longer. So just, a guy who is as synonymous with the Celtics as the leprechaun on the logo. Before I get into the stats, a few things that are worth noting about him as a player or not necessarily even as a player, but just sort of his personality in 1964 at the all-star game, there was a 
pretty significant effort on the part of some of the players to go on strike and not play the all-star game. And I believe this would have been the first organized labor stoppage in American sports, at least in the modern era. There may have been some things in the baseball in the 1880s or something, but the issue was pensions for players. And the three leaders of the effort were Will Chamberlain, Lenny Wilkins, and Tommy Heinsohn. And it came back, it came down to sort of the 11th hour before the owners gave into some of these demands. And finally, agreed to meet the meet this desire for a pension fund and the team, the players went on and played the all-star game. And then the other thing was that Heinsohn was sort of the guy that red Auerbach would yell at because he, there were certain players that, and you hear a lot about this type of thing with Vince Lombardi and that type of thing too, but there were certain players that Auerbach felt that he could yell at and others that he felt were too sensitive. Both Russell and Kuzi were very sensitive in their own, distinct way. So Auerbach would often yell at Tommy Heinsohn because he knew Tommy Heinsohn could take it uh, to make a greater point to the team. In 1956, beginning of the 56-57 season, the Celtics throughout the 50s had been sort of a decent team led by Kuzi. They also had some other future Hall of Famers in Ed McCauley and Cliff Hagen and some other guys. And in 56, they really do two things. The first thing is they trade McCauley and Hagen and some other guys to the St. Louis Hawks for the right to draft Bill Russell. And then they also draft Tommy Heinsohn with a territorial pick, which was when you the team had the right to draft somebody who went to a college in their area. Heinsohn went to Holy Cross, so the Celtics had his territorial rights. I hadn't realized this until when... Heinsohn passed away a few weeks ago, but Russell missed the beginning of the 1956 season because he was playing in the Olympics. I guess the summer Olympics were at a different time than they normally are. They were later in the year. So Russell missed a significant chunk of that 56 season. And keep in mind that they had just traded a couple of their really good players, including Ed McCauley, who was their center to the St. Louis Hawks. So Heinsohn kind of steps up and fills that center role in the 1956 season until Russell gets there and has probably his shining moment in game seven of the 1957 finals between the Celtics and those same St. Louis Hawks. The vaunted Hall of Fame backcourt of the Celtics of Bob Cousy and Bill Sharman was a combined five for 40 in that game seven in 1957. So Heinsohn really steps up and shoulders the load, scoring 37 points and bringing in 23 rebounds to lead the Celtics to that game seven win. If there was an NBA finals MVP award in those days, I think it can almost be certain that Tommy Heinsohn would have won it. And I think just also how he transitioned into coaching after you know, retiring and being a player under Auerbach, under Auerbach and then just becoming the coach in the late 60s and, you know, again, keeping them at the level they'd been at and winning a couple of championships. And that also sort of coincided with the the rise of those Nick teams briefly. So, you know, I certainly had some competition within his 
within the Eastern Conference, the most serious competition they'd had, I guess, except for the Sixers for a couple of years. So I think that shouldn't go overlooked either, that just how hard a role that was to fill and the expectations with the Celtics of you still need to be a contender and winning the championship more often than you're not. And he was able to, not at the level they've been at under Russell, but still, you know, with the Russell teams, but still get a couple of championships and be a contender every single year. Obviously known as a Celtic lifer. One of the interesting things, and this was something else that I didn't learn about until listening to some interviews after he passed away, he sort of actively tried to get back into coaching in the 1980s. He was talked about one of the times that there was an opening with the Knicks. He was seriously talking. He was actually originally from, I think he was from either New York City or North Jersey, but he was originally from the New York metropolitan area. Jersey City. Jersey City. So right outside of New York City. And so he was originally from that area and was really heavily talked. I think it was when the Knicks ended up hiring UB Brown that they talked about Heinsohn as a potential coach for the Knicks. And then even a couple of years later, and I don't know exactly why this fell through, but he really, really, really wanted to coach that Houston Rockets Twin Towers team with Akeem and Ralph Sampson. So it's just funny to think about how, despite being known as this Celtics lifer, he came very close to coaching other teams and his legacy would probably not be what it is now as far as a Celtic is concerned, because chances are if he goes to coach one of those teams for a few years, he does that and then maybe ends up doing something else. And he probably doesn't just end up broadcasting Celtic games for close to 40 years. So his whole legacy would be completely different. It's a good point. Yeah, you you tend to think of these guys as sort of especially him like oh well he would never work for another organization and it's like well you know if he had you're but you're right it would have seemed so weird to think of him as having coached the rockets or something like that but then maybe he falls in with them and he's broadcasting with them for 30 years and then obviously just as a broadcaster i find it hard to believe that at least in his later years he wasn't at least somewhat putting on an act because it just there's no way any single human being could be that biased in their <laughs> viewing of an NBA or of a basketball game. But, you know, I don't know. I, I personally thought it was probably went a little too far at times, but the people in Boston loved it. So maybe, maybe we're not ones to criticize. He, he, well, that's the, the big thing is like, that wasn't for me as someone who does not like the Celtics and generally does not find myself rooting for them, except for tomorrow against the Nets, but it wasn't for me. It, to, and to me, I know I compare too many things to wrestling, but it's like, he's almost the, the bad guy announcer where it's like, he can't actually believe all this stuff, but he's playing a character and saying positive things about the bad guys and saying he doesn't see you when they cheat. That was to me was Heinsohn was, he was a broadcaster for Celtics fans, even Celtics fans knew he wasn't being objective, but that was what they were used to. And that was who it was for. He was the part of them that wanted to scream that a good call was a bad call or that these refs are always biased against the Celtics, even though, you know, it's not true. That was the role he was filling. And it obviously was a successful one. Kevin Garnett has picked up the technical foul, and Kevin Garnett's been tossed out of the game. And a minute time, Stoudemire 
Let's move on to another player who wore the green and white in a somewhat different capacity. That's a stretch. I guess I think it's my turn, right? Yes. Okay. Paul Horning, born 1935, died on November 13th. Horning starred as a halfback and safety for Notre Dame from 1954 to 1956. In 1956, Horning led the Irish in passing, rushing, scoring, kickoff returns, punt returns, punting, and passes broken up. He was second in interceptions and tackles made and won the Heisman Trophy despite Notre Dame having only a 2-8 and eight record. Drafted first overall by the Green Bay Packers, Horning thrived in the early years of Vince Lombardi's tenure as part of the famed Packers sweep. In 1960, he set a single-season record with 176 points scored, a mark which stood until 2006. He was named MVP the following year and helped lead the Packers to their first NFL championship under Lombardi. He remained with the Packers until 1966 and was named to the Hall of Fame in 1986. Everybody knows who Paul Horning is or who Paul Horning was. He's probably one of the best known members of that Lombardi Packer dynasty. He has the good looks, the fair skin, the blonde hair. He has this sort of pedigree of comes from Notre Dame. That's a big part of it, especially Notre Dame still means something, but it certainly meant something in the mid 1950s. I think his Heisman Trophy winner by those who are much more knowledgeable about these matters than I am is considered one of sort of the great Heisman Trophy travesties. How could a guy who goes two and eight win a Heisman Trophy? And the reasons were really two of them. First of all, he was playing for Notre Dame. And second of all, I think he led his team in basically every category on both offense and defense. In recent years, many schools have had teams named Desire. In 1956, Notre Dame had a football team named Horning. Horning, number five, did everything. He led the Irish in scoring, passing, pass interceptions, and punting, and won the Heisman Trophy. Horning was a flamboyant free spirit who broke as many curfews as he did tackles. Yeah, in that season that he won the Heisman Trophy. In reading that, I don't know what other stats there would be. I basically listed every single stat. I guess is he was he first in passes caught. I guess he couldn't have been first in passes caught because he was first in passing and rushing. But that's basically it. Every other stat is is him. Yeah, a crazy tack second in tackles. I mean that it's just it's insane. I'm looking at the Heisman Trophy voting from that year. So he finished with. Actually, only second in first place votes. He finished with 100, uh, 1,066 total points for the Heisman. Guys right behind him were Johnny Majors, running back from Tennessee. 
Tommy McDonald and Jerry Tubbs, both from Oklahoma, were three and four. Tommy McDonald actually had the most first place votes. And then number five was Jim Brown from Syracuse at uh, number five. So two guys who finished relatively close in the votes in majors and McDonald, but um, hard to imagine a guy on a two and eight team, even as dominant in the statistics as he was. I mean, it would never fly today. You know that. So his Packer career is a very interesting one. First of all, the relationship between him and Lombardi is a unique one. David Moranis, who wrote the biography of Lombardi, which is probably one of the best. It's funny. Actually, I was just talking about this with my father the other night. It's probably one of the two or three best sports books ever written, especially as far as biographies go. And it was always said that Lombardi sort of had three sons. He had his own son, Vince Jr. This is Moranis's theory. He had Bart Starr, who was the good son, the quarterback, the Christian, the clean living. And then he had Horning. Horning, who was sort of the prodigal son, the one who drank and caroused and got in trouble. And it was always said that Lombardi kind of secretly wished he could be like Paul Horning with the women and the carefree lifestyle. Horning for his part, says that Lombardi saves his career. He said that he probably would not have stayed in football for another year or two, more than another year or two, if Lombardi hadn't come to the Packers. As far as his on-the-field career, he has two seasons that I think you could say under Lombardi that were unequivocally really, really good seasons in 1960, he scores a league record, and I don't know if this record still stands to this day, but he scores 176 points in the 1960 season. That's 15 touchdowns and 15 field goals made and 41 extra points. Sets a league record. You were about to say something? Yeah, it was broken by Ladanian Tomlinson in 2006. I remember that. 40 years later, it was, or more than 40 years later, it was broken. 1960 is the year that the Packers go to the NFL championship game against the Eagles and lose in the closing minutes. And then in 61, he wins the MVP. He scores a total of... Only 10 touchdowns that year, but he continues to kick field goals and extra points and is the unanimous selection for NFL MVP that year. After that, there's really not a heck of a lot to his career. In 1962, he only plays in nine games, and that's in large part because of military commitments. He was in the, I think it was the Army Reserves, and so he misses a bunch of games Because of that, Lombardi, though, is actually able to pull some favors with his good friend, uh, President John F. Kennedy, to get Horning out to play in the NFL championship game in 62. And then in 1963, he, along with Alex Karras, a Hall of Fame defensive tackle for the Detroit Lions and a few others, are suspended for gambling on football games, not for betting against their own team and certainly not for throwing games but for gambling and for associating with gamblers. And then Horning comes back for three years, but he's really sort of a shell of his former self in 64, 65, and 66. He has a few bright moments, 
but his career as far as the legendary years is really over by sometime in 1962. Really kind of amazing how little, and I know among a segment of you and people like you and, you know, sports history, like that the the horning scandal is known, but I just, how much of it exists in sort of the overall sports zeitgeist, how little that's acknowledged is interesting just because of, you know, you think about Pete Rose and how that's an all encompassing scandal that we could talk about for years betting on baseball. And, and it's different. I get that. And it's more serious what Rose did, but just kind of interesting that there's no controversy about Orning. He did it serves a suspension. And, you know, he had said that he thought that a big part of it was that Lombardi really lobbied the league to, you know, and you think about 1963, the position Vince Lombardi occupied within the NFL, he was in a position that probably nobody else in the league was to sort of throw his weight around, so to speak, and kind of, lobby Roselle to get Horning reinstated the playing time thing you're talking about and just you know how his productivity declined after that that style was going to be tough on a running back no it was an era where running reigned supreme but sort of the Packer sweep and the what these days we'd call ground and pound if possible he was going to have a, a relatively short shelf life and I think we saw that as as the years went on into the 60s, didn't play in Super Bowl one. Now we have to look back at Super Bowl one and especially how the NFL and the Packers saw it, which was half a step above an exhibition after they'd won the NFL championship a few weeks before that or the week before that. I guess because of the pinch nerve, didn't play in the fourth quarter. They asked him if he wanted to get in the game and he said no. Certainly, I think if they had known what the Super Bowl would become, he probably would have done so, but at the time, there was no way to tell that that was going to be what it would become. So just thought that was interesting. Yeah, Lombardi came to him and said, do you want to play? And he said he didn't. He had been out with Max McGee the night before, and neither one of them expected to play, and Horning does not play, but Max McGee gets in the game and has a sort of all-time legendary performance in that very first Super Bowl in he really only has one great game after coming back from the suspension. And that's in 1965 against Don Shula, somebody else who passed away this year and the Baltimore Colts. And it's a key late season divisional matchup. Unitas is hurt and the backup quarterback for Baltimore is starting And Paul Horning scores five touchdowns in this game. He scores three rushing touchdowns and two passing touchdowns. And that's considered sort of his last great hurrah in 1965. And then at the end of the 66 season, Horning had not been expected to retire. Lombardi put him on. It's kind of similar to what we were talking about last week with Tom Seaver. Lombardi put Horning on the list of players eligible for the expansion draft for the 67 season. And he gets picked up by the new Orleans saints. Interestingly enough, Jim Taylor, who was from the new Orleans area had left the Packers to sign with the new Orleans saints. So the saints came very close to actually having Horning and Taylor in the backfield for their very first year of existence. Now Horning 
ends up discovering this neck injury and doesn't even play, but that was the end of his Packers career. I think the only thing that's worth noting is that a lot of people think that Horning may be the most undeserving player in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I tend to be okay with it because I like the idea of telling a story and telling the story of the great players in different ways. Even if the stats don't add up to a Hall of Famer, some of the intangibles do, but a lot of people feel the opposite way about Horning as a Hall of Famer. After he left football or after he left, you know, his playing days, did some broadcasting work, did some, you know, radio stuff. It looks like he was a color analyst for the Vikings for a while in the early 70s, did some NFL telecast, never became like a main guy or anything, was the sideline reporter for Super Bowl 12, which what would a Super Bowl 12 have been? Is that one of the Steelers Cowboys Super Bowls? Cowboys and the Broncos. Cowboys Broncos. Got himself into a little bit of a jam, uh, into a little bit of hot water in 2004 when they were he was being interviewed about Notre Dame's struggles at the time and said, we can't stay as strict as we, as we are as far as the academic structure is concerned because we've got to get the black athletes. We must get the black athletes if we're going to compete. So, you know, not the worst thing in the world, but also not a, a smart thing to say and sort of the apologies flowed after that just that was sort of the most recent large news he made if not the best news and somebody who stayed in both the packer and notre dame families for the rest of his life i think about that if you're a god in the midwest if you're a, if you're a legend at notre dame and the packers <laughs> that's pretty hard to top in the midwest let's move on to another football player jake scott who was born in 1945 and passed away on November the 19th. A five-time Pro Bowler and two-time All-Pro at safety, Scott was a key player on the no-name defense of the Miami Dolphins of the early 1970s. He's the all-time Dolphins leader in passes intercepted. Scott was the MVP of Super Bowl VII, recording two interceptions in the Dolphins' victory over Washington. Probably the... If you're trying to list every Super Bowl MVP, Jake Scott is probably the one that's the easiest to miss. That was literally what I was going to say the first time I talked, which is anytime I do a Sporkle quiz and I'm doing Super Bowl MVPs, he's one of the ones at the bottom that I miss where I get to that one and I'm like, okay, Zonka, was it kick? Was it greasy? Did, was, did Earl Morrow play in that game? And I go through and then Jake Scott's one of the ones I missed. Was part of those no-name defenses was you know that 72 Dolphins team that still is the only modern era undefeated NFL team, but yeah, not one of the guys who you miss when you do the, uh, the quizzes on Super Bowl MVPs. Did good things in both of the Super Bowl wins. He had the two interceptions against Washington in 72. And then a year later in their win over the Vikings, he recovered two fumbles also returned kickoffs and punts. War number 13 with the Dolphins, which was a strange number for a safety. And obviously, it's a little strange looking back to see a safety wearing number 13 on the Dolphins because it's so easily associated with Dan Marino. That Dolphin defense of the 1970s had the nickname of the no-name defense because it was a bunch of guys who, let alone in retrospect, but even at the time really had a lot of guys that people hadn't really heard of. I think the only, I think the only hall of famer 
from those Dolphins teams is Nick Bonacati. I, I, I'll double check that, but I think Bonacati is the only Hall of Famer from those teams on the defense. Something on Scott that I didn't uh, realize. I, I knew he, he went to school at uh, Georgia, went to college, but is actually uh, played his high school ball in, in your neck of the woods in Arlington, Virginia, went to Washington and Lee High School. I saw that. I saw that. You know, it's kind of funny. We talked about uh, Herb Adderley before. Where it's like older at, like I associate them with certain teams and things. And then you look and you're like, oh, they, you just assume they grew up in that area too. Like, especially with Heinsohn. I just assumed, oh, he went to Holy Cross and was with the Celtics for his whole life. He must have gone to school somewhere in that area. And that's like, oh, no, he went he's from Jersey City. Kind of the same thing with, with Jake Scott here. Where I'm like, oh, he was from a high school that did we coach basketball at Washington and Lee High School a couple of times when I was living down there? Yes, we did. And actually, at um, during my brief flirtation with becoming a teacher, I did my week-long student teaching at Washington and Lee a few years later. So one I'm very familiar with. I don't recall any sort of commemoration. And I, I don't say that as a joke because if you think about it, how many high schools have a Super Bowl MVP that went to their high school and played for them? But I, I don't recall any specific commemoration. And I was not aware of Jake Scott having gone there either. Just should note before we move on, a Super Bowl MVP, there are some Super Bowl MVPs. I'm thinking of uh, who was the player for the Bucks? who was the MVP? Was it Dexter Jackson? Jackson, yep. And Larry Brown with the Cowboys against Pittsburgh in Super Bowl 30. A lot of times these defensive backs who make some good plays in a Super Bowl, they pick off a couple of passes. That's the only thing they ever did in their career. And I just listed two examples of that. To be fair, Scott from 71 to 75, he was both a pro bowler and an all pro every year from 1971 to 1975. So it's not like he was just a one game wonder. Doesn't reach the level of Hall of Famer, but a solid contributor and one of the stars of that Dolphins defense in the early 1970s. Yeah. And if you look at his interception totals those years, you know, had at least four or five interceptions and sometimes as many as eight or nine most of those years. Yeah. And leads the team all time in interceptions. Let's move on to somebody completely different than anybody, anybody that Andrew and I have talked about so far. And that is Diego Maradona, who was born in 1960 and passed away on November 25th. Maradona is widely regarded as one of the greatest soccer players of all time and was one of FIFA's two players of the century for the 20th century, the other one being Pele. He is perhaps best known for the hand of God goal scored during the Argentina versus England quarterfinal match of the 1986 World Cup. Yeah, so this was June 22nd of 1986, which is actually the day one of my good friends was born in Mexico City. And you can see the, the video of it where he basically jumps up and punches the ball through the goal. And this was in the eighties. There was no, the referees didn't have a clear view of the play. There was no video or instant replay kind of thing back then gave Argentina lead one, nothing. They ended up winning two to one. And then after the, um, and he actually, the second goal was scored by him as well in the more conventional method of soccer goals, which is using your foot. After the game, uh, the match and Maradona was, as we'll talk about sort of with his coaching and, and, 
press conferences, he was always a very outspoken and controversial guy. And they were asking him after the match. And he said, the goal was scored a little with his head, a little with his, and a little with the hand of God. So you've heard people after that say it was the hand of God and the hand of Maradona that scored it. So it forever became known as the hand of God goal. The wide men have found little space in this contest. Yeah, um, just, again, not going to pretend to be one, not going to pretend to be an expert on this, but one of, if not the greatest moments in the history of the World Cup, a something that probably, if there had been replay in those days, probably would not have stood. So it's interesting to think about this legendary moment that, would not have stood had it been had it taken place in the modern era and something that really galvanized an entire country we can't really relate to it as well not being soccer fans not playing soccer and not you know growing up in that part of the world but for argentina to defeat great britain in the mid-1980s, a country that they'd had some conflict with um, on a geopolitical scale earlier in the decade, it really is a big deal. And he was just a national hero, a guy who lived fast, struggled with drug and alcohol problems, and obviously died way too young. But a national hero in Argentina, probably in a way that we really can't understand in the United States. He's probably the top guy when people think of Argentina outside of, you know, Avita and don't cry for me, Argentina. But I mean, in sort of people who were living until very recently, I should point out they won the World Cup in 86. So that game was a quarterfinal and that then brought them to winning the World Cup, which I believe was the first time for Argentina. There's not too many, to be honest, soccer players that you and I would cover on this. It would have to be of a very high stature and... Maradona is a player of that stature, the play obviously being one of the most famous plays in soccer history. So that would be the reason we covered it. You mentioned the sort of geopolitical thing. I guess in later years, Maradona said that was revenge for the Falkland War. So kind of feeds into what you were talking about and also his propensity for making grandiose claims about himself. Absolutely. Let's stay on the international stage, but come a little closer to home with an American who starred in international competitions. Do you want to talk a little bit about Rafer Johnson? Sure. Rafer Johnson, born in 1934, died on December 2nd. 
educated at UCLA, Johnson completed in the decathlon at both the 1956 and 1960 Summer Games. He won gold at the 1960 Games in Rome, narrowly defeating his friend and UCLA teammate C.K. Yang of Taiwan. In addition to his Olympic career, Johnson played basketball for UCLA under John Wooden and was drafted by the Los Angeles Rams in the 1959 NFL Draft. In 1968, he worked on the presidential campaign of Robert F. Kennedy and helped apprehend Kennedy's assassin, Sarhan Sarham. So I have to say, this was one of the most fascinating guys for me to look into. He had competed in the decathlon in the 1956 Olympics, the same one that Bill Russell missed the beginning of his rookie season to compete in. And he had been favored to win, but he pulled a leg muscle and I believe finished second in that Olympics. And I'll just he I'll did silver medal in 56 silver medal in 56. And then in 1960 competes and wins the decathlon. His main rival is a man by the name of Yang Chown Kwong, also known as CK Yang, who is a good friend and teammate of johnson's on the ucla track team and in fact the two of them are such good friends that they train together for the olympics and even during the olympic games they find themselves giving each other advice before the competitions start even though they're competing against each other for the gold medal yeah, I, I feel like with a lot of individual sports, especially endurance sports, you're competing against other people and they push you, but there's not, this is anecdotal at best because I've never done this, but it, it seems like there's sort of the camaraderie of like, you're both going to do your absolute best and whether that's good enough to beat the next guy is almost, at that point, you can't do anything more than what you're going to do. So it's like a test of your body. So it's almost like, there's no reason to not help the other guy as much. Yeah. His name, the named the sportsman of the year in 1958, which when you think of some of the other potential choices in night by sports illustrated, which when you think of some of the other potential choices in, in that year specifically is pretty incredible was given the honor of lighting the Olympic flame at the 1984 summer Olympics in LA, which is one of the highest honors. When you think about it has to be, when the Olympics, the Olympics are only every two years, if you count both the summer and winter Olympics and every four years, if you just think about the summer Olympics and it has to be in your country to be given that honor. So think about how rare an honor that is. And he was given that in 84 in, in LA. And when he passed away, I heard some people saying that sort of like 12 years later with Muhammad Ali, it was something that they really remembered that day in 1984 when he lit that Olympic torch I want to talk a little bit about his friendship with Yang. And I've, I talked earlier about David Moranis's book on Lombardi. David Moranis wrote another really good book called Rome 1960 about the 1960 Olympics in Rome that we're talking about. Johnson and Yang embraced each other from the start. Yang says, quote, when I got there, I had no friends. Rafer took me under his wing. He even took me home to Kingsburg where I met his family. And Moranis writes, their bond transcended even the language barrier Johnson later remembered that when Yang arrived, quote, he handled English like I handled Chinese breakfast, lunch and dinner. All he wanted to eat was beefsteak. <laughs> so uh, so 
Johnson is the first black Olympic athlete for the U.S. to carry the flag. He's also the team captain of the U.S. Olympic track team. And I just want to sort of give sort of an idea that not being an expert on the Olympics, these are the events. So they start off with the 100 meter, 100 meter dash sprint. And Yang finishes first, Johnson finishes third. Then they then move on to the long jump. Yang is first, Johnson second. The shot put, Johnson first. Yang is not very good at that event. He's all the way down at 14th. High jump, Yang tied for first with an Indian athlete. And Johnson is in second, although I guess that should technically be considered third. 400 meter, Yang second, Johnson third. 110 meter hurdles, Yang first, Johnson fifth, discus, Johnson third, and Yang was not as good at these field events. He was all the way down at 11th. Pole vault, Yang is first, Johnson third, javelin throw, Johnson third, Yang fourth. And then they go into the last event, the 1500 meters, which is neither one's great event. And I think they know that going in, but Yang had done better than at it than Johnson had historically. But nonetheless, even though Yang is 12th and Johnson is all the way down at 15th, Johnson's time is good enough to get the points to bring home the gold medal. And they, after the race ends, they sort of both embrace and you know, kind of carry each other and their exhausted bodies to the medal stand. And Johnson is awarded the gold, Yang the second. At the Rome Olympics of 1960, two men competed in the decathlon, who, though born and raised on opposite sides of the world, had become great friends on and off the field. America's Rafa Johnson and Taiwan's Yang Chuan Kwang met at the University of California, and both men had trained together leading up to the Olympics. Yang, running second, beat Johnson's time in the 100 meters and took the lead. He increased his lead by winning the long jump. From that point on, the friendship was on hold. With a huge throw in the shot put, Johnson took the lead by a considerable margin. Then the rain came, forcing the last two events to be delayed until the evening. Yang won both, but Johnson still led at the start of day two. Yang started where he left off, with a victory in the 110-meter hurdles. But Johnson's strength in the discus once again destroyed Yang's hopes of taking the lead. And though Yang gained back some ground in the pole vault, Johnson's best javelin throw bettered Yang's. And so everything depended on the final event, the 1500 meters. Yang would win the gold if he could beat Johnson by over 10 seconds. Johnson clung on, never more than a few yards behind. In his sprint to the line, Yang knew his dream of gold was over. Johnson had stayed with him the whole way and run the fastest 1,500 meters of his life. Though 
Yang had won seven of the ten events. Johnson's strength and power had given him the victory and allowed him to beat his great friend and rival to one of the most hard-fought goals in Olympic history. Johnson then retires, becomes an actor, and then he, along with Rosie Greer, the lineman for the L.A. Rams, and I think also for the Giants briefly, as well as George Plimpton, the author who wrote Paper Line and a number of other books, they are the three men who tackle Robert F. Kennedy's assassin immediately after Kennedy is shot in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel in 1968. So a really, really interesting life and a really, really interesting story of the decathlon in the 1960 Olympics. I did just want to point out Rosie Greer was a giant a lot longer than he was a ram and had his best years as a giant. I know that's not the point, but I figured I would mention that because you said he was a, a giant briefly. Also, something interesting I just saw with uh, Rayford Johnson, I didn't realize his brother is a football Hall of Famer. Was He also ran track at UCLA, but wasn't the caliber that Rafer was his brother Jimmy too. Jimmy Johnson with the 49ers right yep went and uh was a 49er for the 60s and most of the 70s and is a hall of famer with the San Francisco 49ers so sort of in the era before the Montana dynasty we talked about early but was a great player I have to admit I did not know that either all right we've got just three more to go here and why don't I talk a little bit about Dick Allen who was born in 1942 and passed away on December 7th Allen played 15 season in the major leagues most prominently with the Philadelphia Phillies Allen suffered racial abuse early in his career with Philadelphia but persevered to win rookie of the year in 1964 leading the NL in runs extra base hits and total bases Allen won MVP honors in 1972 while playing with the Chicago White Sox, leading the league in both home runs and RBIs. He later returned to the Phillies in the mid-1970s and served as a mentor to young players, including Mike Schmidt. Many consider Allen to be the best player not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Which is something that will probably be rectified. The Baseball Hall of Fame and all Hall of Fames in general have sort of a bad habit of Guys who are on the border don't get in and then they die and they get put in. And it's like, well, you probably would have enjoyed that when he was alive a little bit more. I read an article on Alan uh, or actually a piece. He's one of the most famous Sports Illustrated covers of all time where he's absolutely as a White Sox. He's juggling three baseballs with a cigarette in his mouth. And I read the an article this past week where they tracked down the photographer who did. I don't track down. They just talk to him um they talked to the photographer who took those pictures and i guess the guy didn't even realize when he saw the picture when he saw him juggling and took the picture he didn't even realize that alan had a cigarette in his mouth and after he sent the picture in and it got the cover which it's interesting because the cover there was no like big article accompanying it and the that particular issue doesn't even really have that much about baseball in it but it was just such a good picture that then the photographer realized, oh, he had a cigarette in his mouth and he might get in trouble. And I guess he did get fined. But when the photographer again, and I'm trying to pull up the the name of the guy who took the picture, saw Alan again, it was John Iacono, who's actually was a cousin or uncle of Jimmy Kimmel, the current late night host. He was worried that when he saw Alan again, Alan was going to be mad at him. And I guess he saw him and said, hey, did I get you? 
Alan came storming up to him and said, Hey man, did you take that photo of me worried that Alan was going to be mad at him? And he started apologizing and Alan said it was fine. It was great publicity and he loved it. So, you know, definitely a guy who walked to the beat of his own drummer, but was an excellent player. Certainly was put through a little bit of the ringer in Philadelphia when he was known as Richie Allen, especially with the racial stuff. And then had a good second act of his career after he left Philadelphia, especially with the White Sox, but he was a bunch of other places too. So many places that we could go here with Dick Allen. You mentioned Philly. Philly, historically, not a place that was very friendly, and that's a vast understatement to black baseball players. Jackie Robinson famously suffered some of his most vicious racial abuse in his early years at the hands of the Philadelphia Phillies a few years later. When Kurt Flood is traded to the Philadelphia Phillies, one of the reasons why he refuses to report is because of some of the racist abuse that was taken by other black players, both home and away in front of the Philadelphia fans. When I say home and away, I mean both their home team and visiting players. Allen wants to be known as Dick, the announcers and press for a long time insist on calling him Richie. On the other hand, at least some of his problems seem to be of his own making. He has a drinking problem. He misses flights and games. Bill James says that he does not consider an Allen a Hall of Famer because Allen has done more to prevent his team from winning than any other player in baseball history. I don't know exactly what Bill James bases that on. The fact remains that with the exception of one LCS very late in his career in 76 with Philly. Allen does not play on any winning teams. Maybe the best team he ever plays on is those 64 Phillies that have that historic collapse against the Cardinals in the 1964 season. So there's really a lot with Allen on both sides of the ledger. One thing that you can't deny is that the guy's numbers are Hall of Fame numbers. He has the fourth most home runs in baseball from 1961 to 1976. Now that's obviously a somewhat arbitrary date, but he's up there with guys like Willie McCovey and Harmon Killebrew, who are no question hall of famers, Jay Jaffe. And I'll put this in the show notes has written a book called the Cooperstown case book, where he talks about players who should be in the hall of fame and aren't. And he names sort of a, a glaring omission at each position And Dick Allen is the guy he has at third base. So like you said, a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame and almost certainly will be probably the next time that committee votes. Yeah, I believe I read he's got the highest slugging percentage of any player not in the Hall of Fame or or had it until Albert Bell became Hall of Fame eligible. And they also didn't put him in for probably similar reasons. It's interesting a couple of other things that are interesting about his career and his legacy as tough as it was for him in Philly, after he leaves the white Sox in 1974, he's ready to retire and the Phillies coax him out of retirement to come back and play for them for a few more years. So there must not have been too much bitterness on either side by that point because the Phillies wouldn't have pursued him and he wouldn't have accepted if you know if they had left on such bad a term so 
it's nice to know that he just eventually let uh, he eventually was loved enough in the city of Philadelphia that they wanted him to come back for those couple of years. And it's too bad that he just for health reasons, it's too bad that he just couldn't have been around for a couple more years to be on that team that won the world series, because I would have been, think it would have been a nice fitting end to not just his baseball career, but his time in Philadelphia. The other thing that's interesting to note, and you talked about players who sort of got in the hall of fame, shortly after passing away, the biggest example of that that everybody always cites is Ron Santo with the Cubs. And there's an, and and Jaffe writes about this in his book, so I don't want to take too much credit for it. There's an odd prejudice among hall of fame voters against third basemen. For whatever reason, there are a lot of third basemen who people think maybe should, or probably should be in the hall of fame who aren't in it. And Santo is, is kind of at the top of that list. So it's a very interesting, very interesting set of circumstances with Allen and his, his status as a third baseman is sort of gets tied in with guys like Santo who took forever to get in. There's, they talk about Greg Nettles, Ken Boyer, who won the MVP with the Cardinals in 64 on a world series team there's sort of a backlog of third basemen who probably belong in the hall of fame, but haven't gotten in. Yeah. And he would certainly be, uh, be one of them who you can make a strong case for. So sort of a, a good news and bad news. The good news is he'll almost certainly get in at some point in the next few years. The bad news is he unfortunately will not be around to enjoy that. Anaheim's beautiful new $24 million stadium, completed only last year, is in a gay holiday mood. Richie Allen, who hit 40 homers last year, leads off the National League second inning. Dean Chance now faces the dangerous Philly slugger. Allen takes the first pitch, wide of the plate. Chance is now working on Richie with the count one and one. He fires a breaking pitch, but Allen connects solidly, and there it goes. It's way, way back. It's a home run. A 400-footer that sails into the bleachers in deep right center. Now that pitch was in a perfect spot, low and outside, and it's a tribute to Allen's great strength that he could slam a pitch like that such a tremendous distance. It's the first run of the game. So while we're on the subject of Dick Allen, we have a special guest on the program, which is my father and I guess Dan's father as well. Uh, That's how it works. It's Glenn <laughs> Newman. And the reason we have him is my father grew up in the suburban Philadelphia area when Dick Allen, who at the time was Richie Allen, which was contentious, as we've discussed, was playing for the Phillies, who were largely a moribund franchise and he was one of the lone bright spots so we figured we would get my father on the line just to discuss a little bit about the career specifically the philadelphia part of the dick allen story so dad i guess the question you know i know i've heard you talk about dick allen before and sort of how badly he was treated in philadelphia but i guess just sort of before that just any memories you might have of early on with him on the phillies and and sort of um being one of the few bright spots of that team as the 60s wore on. 
Well, I, I was I was like nine years old in 1964, which was obviously his first full year in the major leagues. And he was the rookie of the year. And I have again, it was a long time ago, but I do have memories of how they were in first place for most of what I can remember of the season. And then at the end of the season, obviously, they had the historic collapse where I guess they lost 10 games in a row and ended up falling out of first place. But as a kid, you have a tendency to gravitate towards the star players. And and Richie Allen, as he was known at that time, was was definitely the star of that team. And, you know, he hit a lot of home runs and he was he hit the ball tremendously hard. So he was just the guy that I remember from 64 and then over the next few years, he and Johnny Callison were really the players that that I liked the most. And again, we collected baseball cards and you wanted to get, you know, their, their cards, the stars of the team. I, I, I just remember, and it's again, as a kid, but I remember there was such controversy surrounding him and it was always portrayed in the, in I think the papers and the TV that he was the problem. And I think now 50 years later, we all find out that, he really wasn't the problem. It was the racism and the Philadelphia fans that were the problems. And as I've mentioned to you guys on a couple of occasions, as I recall, he lived in Chestnut Hill, which is where my grandmother and aunt lived. And there was, you know, that was a very affluent area in Philadelphia. And I think there was a resistance to him probably, you know, living in that area. And then there was the whole thing with the uh, the accident where he stuck his hand through the headlight of a car and there was all the, the allegations and the rumors of what it might've been. And a lot of it had racial overtones. Again, I can't say that when I was nine, 10, 11 years old, I felt sorry for him, but just in hindsight, I look at the player he was and I go, my God, they just didn't appreciate what they had there. I mean, he was an unbelievable talent, the rookie of the year, I looked at his statistics when I knew I was going to be talking to you guys. If you look at his statistics in 1966, he came in fourth in the MVP race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, was, he had the same batting average as Roberto Clemente. I think he had a few less RBIs than Clemente. And he had more home runs, more walks. You know, the metrics that they use now as far as on-base percentage and what is it, OPS. I mean... He dwarfed Clemente, who came in first. Koufax came in second, which I can understand. Willie Mays came in third. And, you know, Dick Allen's statistics, he very well could have been in the MVP of the National League in 1966. So I have his numbers here from 66. I'll just go over them real quickly. Uh, He hit 317 with a 396 on base percentage. The sort of counting numbers. He hit 40 home runs with 110 RBIs. The OPS, which is obviously a modern stat, but you know, it's one, it's over one, it's 1.027, which is phenomenal. 331 total bases. And like you said, he finished fourth in the MVP. And that's, you know, obviously those names you listed are pretty heavy duty names, but it sounds like he certainly should have been above a few of them for at least that year. Yeah. And, and like I said, I can understand giving it to Roberto Clemente. His statistics were unbelievable. And, you know, he was obviously a, a superior defensive player. But I mean, for you know, the guy to come in fourth in the MVP balloting with those statistics, 
I, I think a lot of it was just, he was a guy, he wasn't going to take people's abuse just because he was an African-American baseball player and they felt he should shut up and take it. You know, he fought back. I mean, he, he wasn't, he was raised in Pennsylvania. I think it was out by uh, Pittsburgh in Wampum. You know, and I remember reading, you know, many years later that I guess when he got sent to Little Rock, Arkansas on the minor leagues and he, he had to deal with the racism down there, he just wasn't used to that. So anyhow, I just, I always thought he was just such an unbelievably good baseball player. You know, and again, I'm, I'm sure some of the problems he might have made a little easier on himself if he if he wasn't so confrontational. But I can't blame the guy. He just wasn't going to roll over and take it. You know, it's interesting. The Phillies sort of never recovered from that 64 collapse, and they were bad for the next, I don't know, however long, probably until sometime in the 70s. And I wonder if the fact that the team was so bad was part of the reason he had such a contentious relationship with both the fans and the media. I think the Philly fans, you know, again, they've, they've got a reputation and I think a lot of it is well-deserved. They're, they're really hard on some of their players, even when they ought to be a little more grateful that they have those players. I, I, I don't know if they fully appreciate some of the athletes they've had through the years. And again, I'm talking many, many years ago. Yeah, the teams weren't good, but I don't know if the teams were horrific. I think if they had if they had appreciated him more, maybe his statistics after 66 might have even been better. Now, I know he had some injuries that, that limited him somewhat, but, you know, if you're feeling totally underappreciated or you're actually feeling alienated, maybe you're not going to play as well as you would if, if everybody really loved you. I don't know what the feelings were of the manager and his fellow players. I've read articles since then that said they didn't have any problem with him. They didn't think that he was a, a, a clubhouse lawyer or a, uh, a troublemaker in the clubhouse. And I know when he went to Chicago, you know, Tanner, who was a pretty low key manager, absolutely loved him, just thought he was phenomenal. So, and, you know, again, I, I think it was another classic example of the, you know, Philadelphia franchise probably blew it in what they had, you know, and yeah, I, I, you know, we were we, we were talking talking about it. The three of us. I know Mike Schmidt, who again he had a pretty contentious relationship with the Philadelphia fans, and he's only acknowledged as the greatest third baseman in the history of the game, and yet they didn't appreciate him either. So he's always said that you know Dick Allen was just a was a phenomenal influence on him. Just I looked it up. Most of the '60s, they actually were an above 500 team after '64. You know, wins in the mid '80s for the most part. '68, they fell to 10 games below 500, but still not awful. It wasn't until his last year. I think his last year there was '69. It was when they really started to fall off a cliff. But for most of those '60s teams that he was the lead dog on, they were still a you know a solid 85 win sort of middle of the pack team. So not pennant contenders, but they also weren't losing 110 games a year either. Yep. Yep. And I mean, you just, you look at him and the, the, that run he had, you know, for what, 64 to 72, 73. I mean, if he was playing today, you know, he'd, he'd be the centerpiece of a lot of baseball teams. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah. you, know, you can tell it wasn't strictly about baseball when he left because he went, 
I know he bounced around to St. Louis and the Dodgers, but then he had that home in Chicago for a couple of years where he managed. He did win an MVP in 72 with the White Sox and then had a couple of other all-star seasons the next few years with them before ultimately going back to Philadelphia, which is kind of the weird sort of tag to the story. But um, And I think we talked about this when we when Andrew and I spoke about him previously. The ironic thing is that the Phillies actually convinced him to come out of retirement in 75 to play a couple more years for them. So even though there were hard feelings, maybe when he left at some point, he's become, I think in retrospect, a much more beloved member of the Phillies community. And I would be willing to bet. I don't know, especially with, and I think we talked about this, especially with COVID the whole veterans committee process has sort of been upended as far as when, these various candidates are going to be considered again, but I would be shocked if he doesn't get in at some point in the next few years. Yeah. And I know I read, you know, obviously since he died and reading in his obituaries that I guess last summer they had some type of ceremony for him. And uh, in Philadelphia, the owner, I I believe uh, went against his own policy of not retiring numbers unless the player is in the hall of fame, but he retired uh, Allen's, I think it was 15. And if I remember correctly, he, Dick Allen was his favorite player when he was a kid. So, you know, it, again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they put him in the hall of fame. They have a tendency to do this. These guys die. And that seems to put them over the top with some of these, you know, with that, uh, whatever they call the veterans committee now. And for those of you who are interested, next week's episode will be Andrew and I discussing the outlook for the Hall of Fame in 2021. So, yes, there's a lot of politics of all sorts that go into the election of players to the Hall of Fame. Andrew, did you have anything else to add? No, I think that was pretty comprehensive. Um, It was good to have somebody with some, you know, firsthand knowledge because we can read about this stuff and hear sort of accounts. But to have somebody who remembers sort of the the his heyday in Philadelphia in the sixties. I think that was very helpful. Well, and the, the last thing I'll say is, is, you know, I do remember we were kids and we would play, you know, baseball, however we played it, you know, four on four or whatever. I just recall that, you know, he was most of us, he was our favorite player. When you played, it was kind of like, Hey, I'm Richie Allen. And again, we called him Richie Allen. We didn't know it was, a name that he didn't like until years later when he, he went to Chicago and he became Dick Allen. So, but you know, that I, those are just my memories of him. He was, he was my favorite player when I was a kid. Great. Well, dad, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks. We'll have to do this again sometime. Thanks again for, thanks so much for hopping on with us for a few minutes. Hey, thanks for having me guys. Thank you very much. All righty. Bye now. We have only two individuals left to commemorate. And Andrew, why don't you go ahead and read us the biography of our penultimate honoree? Sure. Ray Perkins, born in 1941, died on December 9th. Perkins played five years in the NFL with the Baltimore Colts, but is best known for his coaching career. He coached with the New York Giants from 1979 to 1982, making the playoffs in 1981. Perkins' years were noteworthy for the drafting of Phil Sims and Lawrence Taylor and the hiring of Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick to the coaching staff. Perkins left the Giants after the 1982 season to replace Bear Bryant as head coach of the University of Alabama. In 1993, he reunited with Parcells as offensive coordinator of the New England Patriots and was the team's offensive coordinator during its 1996 Super Bowl run. A lot of people think about the... Belichick 
Parcells coaching tree, but it really starts with Ray Perkins coming to the Giants in 1979, which is the same year that they draft Phil Sims. More importantly, it's the same year that they bring in George Young to be the team's general manager. This was following a period by 79, the Giants, they had not been in the postseason since 1963. Is that right? So the Giants, you know, had that run in the 50s and early 60s where they were kind of the they won in 56. But after that, they were kind of the Buffalo Bills of that era where they got to a bunch of NFL championship games and lost them to the Colts twice, to the Packers twice, and then to the to the Bears in 63. Then they got bad. They had eras in the late 60s, early. They were bad in the mid 60s, in the late 60s, early 70s. They had some seven and seven kind of teams with Fran Tarkenton and, you know, they were all right. And then in the mid 70s, they really bottomed out. That was when they, you know, had to leave Yankee Stadium. They played a couple of seasons at the Yale Bowl and then won at Shea. And by 78, it it bottomed out. Um, you know, the, they were in Giant Stadium by then. But 78 was the miracle of the Meadowlands year, which individually that play is probably overrated in terms of what it did to the giants. The giants were bad already and they just lost another game where they had lost plenty of games, but it was symbolic of this team can't even take a knee, right? Taking a knee wasn't a thing yet, but they couldn't kill the clock. Right. So it was finally too much for the NFL. And they said, Hey, we can't have this. Basically Pete Rosell forced the giants to hire George young and George Young's first move was to bring in Ray Perkins. And the quote is basically, he said he wanted to bring in a coach that would make it unpleasant for the players to lose because it was such a culture of losing. And Perkins was the guy who, while he wasn't there for the big turnaround, he was there for the start of it. The players don't particularly like Perkins. Uh, Harry Carson says, for the most part, Ray Perkins treated everybody the same. The coaches were just like the players. We were all SHIT in Perkins' eyes. Everybody was a dog. The assistant coaches felt the pressure. And as they say, SHIT rolls downhill. He brings on Parcells, but Parcells, for family reasons, quits early on in the 79 season and then comes back in 81 as the linebackers coach. He also brings in Bill Belichick. The Giants have one pretty good year under Perkins, and that's in 81, where they go to the playoffs for the only time. And I believe they win a playoff game, and then they lose to San Francisco. They beat Philly, and then they lose to San Francisco. Is that right? Yeah, they had to win. Basically, that, that season, they, they in the last game of the year, they played on a Saturday. And they had to beat Dallas and then have, I believe, the Packers lose to the Jets the next day. So they won in overtime on the Saturday. And then the next day they got the help they needed. So they went to the wild card round, which was their first playoff game since the 1963 NFL championship. They went to Philadelphia and played the defending NFC champions. They beat the Eagles and then they went out to uh, San Francisco and San Francisco won that game. And then the next week was the Dwight Clark catch game, just for reference. The next year in 82, they got hit by the strike. It ended up only being a nine-game season, and they were just in too much of a hole. And then he 
leaves. And, you know, you can look back and say it was a mistake for him to leave a team that ended up being on the upswing. And you don't know if things would have stayed the same if Perkins was was still the coach. But the big thing is he left to coach at his alma mater and take directly over from Bear Bryant, which if you're an Alabama guy, you know, he went to school in Alabama, grew up in Mississippi, getting the job to succeed immediately succeed bear Bryant was not something he was going to pass up. And there's two things there. I kind of always think I heard this saying long ago, and you can really never criticize a guy for wanting to go home. And that's what this was. It's sort of like uh, about 20 years ago when Roy Williams left Kansas to go to North Carolina. And the whole thing was just, he played for Dean Smith. He was, a North Carolina guy sort of born and bred and he wanted to go home and coach at his alma mater. And he's still there almost 20 years later, Roy Williams is. So at a certain point, you can't blame these guys for wanting to go home. And that's what it was for Perkins. Now it's often better to be the guy who replaces the guy who replaces the legend. You don't often want to be the guy who replaces the legend, and that was what Bryant was, and it didn't end up going well for him during that time period in the 80s with Alabama. And he eventually left one of the gold standards of the college game to go coach at Tampa Bay, which is sort of the dregs at the time of the NFL game. Yeah, and was almost, although not immediately, but was almost succeeded in pretty short order by Parcells before Parcells backed out, which you can listen to on our Tampa sports episode from earlier in our podcast series, you know, and then that was really Tampa job was really the last head coaching job of any seriousness. He got, he was the Arkansas state head coach for a year, not the Arkansas Razorbacks, the Arkansas state team. I don't even know what their nickname is. You know, then he goes with Parcells to be the offensive coordinator with new England, doesn't come with him to the Jets is the offensive coordinator in Oakland. And then after that is a positional coach with the Browns when they return to the league and then is done after 2000 until he comes back and coaches a junior college in 2012, which is interesting to see. I, I guess he would be known specifically as the guy who started the turnaround in New York and then the guy who succeeded Bear Bryant, which I don't know that anybody would have been able to do a satisfactory job there, but you know, is is a part of the lore around here as a, for the New York Football Giants, just as sort of the turnaround started in '79 under Ray Perkins. And it's very strange to me that he then went back and worked for Parcells in New England. Knowing the type of boss that Parcells was, and based on that quote from Harry Carson, knowing the type of boss that Ray Perkins was, and you do see it occasionally where guys, but usually it's sort of a young coach, and you see it more maybe even in the NBA or baseball even than you do in football, but you see it occasionally in the NFL where a young coach will bring in a guy who had coached him in one capacity or another, maybe who he'd worked for. But the idea that these two really strong personalities, one having one at one point worked for the other, that they would flip that and that 
Perkins would then go to work for Parcells for a few years in New England. Kind of strange. And maybe that's why he didn't follow him to the Jets. I don't know the specifics on that, but that could be the reason was that when Parcells left New England, he just decided he'd had enough of dealing with Bill Parcells. Yeah, I think he also could have been damaged goods. You know, he wasn't a success at Alabama, although, like I've said, I think success was going to be pretty much impossible there at that point. And then went to Tampa Bay where nobody was going to be successful at that point. So it's it's possible that by then, if he wanted back in the NFL, it was going to be as a an assistant and it was probably going to come from somebody who he had a previous relationship with. We talk a lot about the 90 Giants and that coaching staff that they had. You know, all the guys, Coughlin and Ray Hanley, who later coached the Giants, and obviously Parcells and Belichick and all the other guys. Cornell. Cornell. The 96 Patriots, you talk about a crazy coaching staff. Parcells, Belichick is the assistant head coach. And then the offensive coaches are Perkins. The guys that maybe you haven't heard of, I'm not going to read, but Perkins. Maurice Carthon, who was a running back for the Giants for 10 years or thereabouts. And on those Patriot teams, the early Belichick Patriot teams for a very long time, I think. And then he was, I know he was with the Cowboys for a while. Charlie Weiss, who went on to coach at Notre Dame, among other places. Mike Pope is the tight ends coach. Mike Pope, who most people haven't heard of, but who was the Giants tight end coach all throughout the 80s and 90s or the 80s and early 90s, sort of the whole Parcells coaching era, you know, with Mark Bavaro. And then later goes back and coaches the Giants as their tight end coach for 13 more years and wins two more Super Bowl rings with the Giants. So that's the offense. And then on the defense, you have Al Groh, who later coaches the Jets, Cornell, who's still coaching today, and then this Dante Scarnecchia, who w- was with the Patriots for an assist as an assistant coach for something like 30 years and just leaves the Patriots after last season and coaches everything from offensive line to special teams to defense. So there's a story behind almost every single assistant coach on that 96 Patriots coaching staff. (laughs) Yeah, it really is when you think about it. All right. Why don't we close this out with one more individual and we're going to talk about Kevin Green who was born in 1962 and passed away just a few days ago on December 21st. A three-time All-Pro, Green starred at outside linebacker for the Rams, Steelers, 49ers, and Panthers. A member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Green was perhaps most proud of his three years with the Pittsburgh Steelers from 1993 to 1995. Years which included his only Super Bowl appearance after the 1995 season. He led the league in sacks twice and is third on the all-time sacks list with 160, behind only Bruce Smith and Reggie White, making him the all-time leader in sacks by a linebacker. Yeah, the you know, Kevin Green, I remember him a little as a stealer, and I think it was one of those where I remember they would call him mean Kevin Green, and I didn't know that was a reference to Joe Green because I was young. I really didn't know who Joe Green was. The weird thing is, even though he only played for one year with them, the the team that stands out to me for him was him as a uh, Panther. Even though it was one year, he was on the Panthers that year that they 
that they went to the NFC Championship game in their second year as a franchise. And I remember their linebackers, of which he was one, I think three of their four linebackers that year made the Pro Bowl. It was him, it was Sam Mills, and maybe one of the, I don't know who it would have been, but he was, I'll see if I can look it up. But that's, even though it was one year, that's what stands out to me with him is the the year he was the uh, with the Panthers that that uh, in 96. That was a funny year in football because the Jaguars and the Panthers had both been expansion teams just a year before. And then to have not one, but both of them go to the conference championship game, we came relatively close to having two second year teams in the Super Bowl, a Jaguars Panthers Super Bowl. And when you keep in mind that the Jaguars 25 years later still haven't made a Super Bowl, the other linebacker that year that was a Pro Bowl was Lamar Lathan, who had 13.5 sacks as one of the outside linebackers. And then Green had 14.5 sacks as the other outside linebacker. Green kind of known as just a crazy guy, even up to and including the flowing blonde hair. He was always just sort of seen as a kind of a nutty, free spirit kind of guy. May have even had his best years with the Rams in the late 80s and the early 90s, but came into prominence with those Pittsburgh teams. And even though he only played with them for three years, he always really, I think, considered himself a stealer. And when he went into the Hall of Fame, each player who goes into the Hall of Fame, they get to choose one team that presents them with their Hall of Fame ring. And he chose the Steelers, even though he'd only been with them for three years. And then he later spent some time in San Francisco and then back in Carolina. But yeah, I forgot that I was going to clarify that he did go back to Carolina pretty quickly. I just I always think of that one year. Had some good years with some good teams and was part of some good linebacking core in the time that he was in the league. I want to look that 95 Pittsburgh defense, a team that he took to the Super Bowl. That was a good team in and of its own right defensively. Rod Woodson obviously eventually would go. It was Woodson on that team. I'm not seeing him yet. Yeah, no, Woodson was hurt that year. That's crazy. He was only played in one game. I did not know that. So they went to the Super Bowl without without Rod Woodson in 1995. That's I was not aware of that. I would have thought that Rod Woodson would have been a key part of that team, but I guess I was wrong about that. But Greg Lloyd was on that team, right? Greg Lloyd was the other outside linebacker along with Green, and Greg Lloyd was an all-pro that year. With Woodson hurt, I'd imagine that Green and Lloyd were probably really the two leaders of that of that defense. So a Hall of Famer like some of these other players that we've talked about, not necessarily somebody who would be considered an all-time great, but a Hall of Famer, third all-time in sacks, highest sack total in history by a linebacker, and he's second or third only to Bruce Smith and Reggie White. So that's some really exclusive company there. So just a really, really good defensive player. And like you, somebody that I remember as a linebacker on some of those teams in the 90s. And we should point out there was actually a, a coach, an outside linebackers coach a couple of times as recently as 2018 with the Jets was the outside linebacker coach for the Packers uh, when they won the Super Bowl in 2010 against the Steelers. So does have a Super Bowl ring as a coach. And also was known for his occasional participation in WCW wrestling. That's right. He was in the uh, for a long time in the late 90s, WCW would bring in athletes, uh, some of whom helped peak interest and some of whom didn't but yeah he was a uh you know that kind of guy was was into the into that sort of scene 
Yeah, and good friends with Ric Flair. So that was another another thing. Both Carolina guys, I guess, in one one capacity or another. So a very unique personality, Kevin Green, and somebody who, like a lot of these football players, died too young. Absolutely. Hi, everybody. So as we feared might happen shortly after we recorded this episode on December the 24th, there were a few other Hall of Fame players in both the NBA and baseball who passed away, and we thought it would be only fair to hop on for a few more minutes here and talk about those two individuals. And so we should start with Casey Jones, who was born in 1932 and passed away on Christmas Day on December 25th. Best known for his defense, Jones played nine seasons with the Boston Celtics from 1958 to 1967 and won eight NBA championships, tied for third most in NBA history. After retiring, Jones embarked on a successful coaching career. In 1975, he led the Washington Bullets to the NBA Finals, where they were defeated by the Golden State Warriors. In 1978, he returned to Boston as an assistant coach under Bill Fitch and was promoted to head coach in 1983. During his tenure, he took the Celtics to four straight NBA Finals, winning the championship in 1984 and 1986. One of only, I'm just looking this up now, one of only eight players in basketball history to have won an NCAA championship, an NBA championship, and an Olympic gold medal. And, you know, you list off the names of guys you're talking about. Russell, Magic, Michael Jordan, Jerry Lucas, Anthony Davis now, and then a couple other guys. So, you know, certainly to the more modern folks, and even this was 30 years ago, people will remember him as the coach for the latter half of those really good 80s Celtics teams, but, you know, certainly was a key part, both of the uh, Russell College championship teams, beating LaSalle in 1955, and then the first eight championships. Why did he retire? It seems like he he retired a little bit earlier than you would have expected. You know, I don't know specifically. I It's funny, the other Celtic from the same time period was Tommy Heinsohn, who also retired in sort of similar fashion. I think careers just weren't necessarily that long. If you think about it, Russell only played two more years after that. Russell only played through 69. Heinsohn didn't play forever. Some of these other guys who were on the team, I think Sam Jones played one less year than Russell and one more year than KC. So I think that was sort of somewhat typical for an NBA career at the time. The funny thing about Casey Jones, if you Bill Simmons in his book of basketball writes about how Casey Jones was able to make it to the Hall of Fame despite the fact that he couldn't even shoot. So probably a little bit of an exaggeration there, but it speaks to the system that a guy like Casey Jones, who was of limited offensive ability because of his defense and because of sort of the intangibles was able to be not only eventually a hall of famer, but such a contributor to so many championship teams. I wonder if maybe as we talked about with, when we were talking about Ken Riley and some of these others, how maybe the fact that Jones played on those great Celtic teams was at least in part responsible for, his 
being elected into the Hall of Fame, maybe his career and his numbers if he had played on the Knicks of the 60s or the Detroit Pistons or one of these other teams that wasn't very good, maybe he would have not had a Hall of Fame career. But the fact of the matter is that he did. And then his coaching career is really impressive. First of all, sort of starting at the end, he coaches those great Celtics teams, including the 86 Celtics, which a lot of people consider to be one of the greatest single season teams in NBA history. He also was with the Bullets for four years in the mid-70s, the Wes Unseld teams that went to the finals and actually served as one year before, after retiring, before he went to Washington, one year as an assistant with the 71-72 Lakers. His old teammate, Bill Sharman, was the head coach there. And that was the Laker team that finally got over the hump with West and Wilt Chamberlain and won a championship. So he's got a ring with the Lakers, too. <laughs> he's got a Lakers ring, and he's got, uh, I don't know how many, 10 Celtics rings, I guess, eight as a player and two as a coach. And I think he's also got, he was an assistant with Boston in 81 when Bill Fitch was the coach. So he's got 11 rings in some capacity with Boston and then two rings with I'm sorry, and then another ring with the Lakers in 72. So 12 total championship rings. Never made an all-star team. So maybe not, again, maybe not the most deserving of Hall of Famers, but just as a member, a lifelong member of the Celtics, a guy who won NBA championships in his first eight years in the league, which is just crazy to think about. After having won two in college right before that. Yes, absolutely. A very winning career for Casey Jones. Please don't, when you're factoring in his Hall of Fame candidacy, I would like you to consider his tenure as coach from 1967 to 1970 with Brandeis. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny to go right from... I guess you got to start somewhere, right? (laughs) Exactly. Brandeis, he he was all over Boston for a couple years. Brandeis uh, from the Celtics, then Brandeis, then a year at Harvard as an assistant. So a really good player, not somebody on the level of a Russell or a Havlicek or a Kuzi or even a Sam Jones, but he took over for Kuzi as the starting point guard after Kuzi retired in 63 and performed more than ably in leading the Celtics to another couple of championships. We've got one more individual to talk about. So, Andrew, would you like to tell us a little bit about Phil Necro? Certainly. Phil Necro, born in 1939, passed away on December 26th. Perhaps the most famous knuckleball pitcher in baseball history, Necro pitched for 24 seasons in Major League Baseball, mostly with the Braves organization, first in Milwaukee and then in Atlanta. A five-time All-Star, Necro holds the unique distinction of winning and losing 20 games in the same season in 1979, the last pitcher to perform that feat. He retired with 318 career wins and was inducted to the Hall of Fame in 1997. Uh, this has to be one of the most unique careers in baseball history. A guy who pitches forever, as you might imagine that a knuckleball pitcher would, he certainly fits the definition of a compiler. 318 wins in 
20, I believe it's 25 or 24 from 64 to 87. So that'd be 24 seasons in the big leagues. He won his 300th game in 1985 as a member of the Yankees. And we'll talk about that a little more later on. 20 game winner a couple of times and a guy who did something and that's throwing the knuckleball head and shoulders above anybody else who ever did it. I think the only two dedicated knuckleballers that are in the Hall of Fame are Necro and Hoyt Wilhelm. Yeah. I was going to say, Will, I thought Wilhelm was in the Hall of Fame, but, you know, even by knuckleballer standards, this sort of longevity is really insane to speak of. I mean, his first year where he, his first really, really good year, well, I guess in 65 it wasn't bad, but 67 was a year he had a 1.87 ERA and, uh, you know, appeared in 46 games, only started half of them, and then was still having, you know, solid years as late as, I guess 84 with the Yankees would probably have been his last pretty good year, although he did win 16 games in 85. I don't care what you're doing, knuckleballer, you know, left-handed specialist who only faces one batter, place kicker. If you've been in, if you're around for 20 years, none of the caveats override that kind of longevity. Leads the league in innings pitched in 1977, 78, and 79 at the age of 38, 39, and 40. And in 1979, with the Braves, finishes sixth in the MVP voting. I'm sorry, sixth in the Cy Young voting, 20th in the MVP voting, wins a gold glove, also leads the league in starts from 77 to 80 every single year. And in 1979, leads the league in both wins and losses, which is just a crazy statistic. Now, the one other thing I want to talk about with Phil Necro is a couple of, I guess over the summer, Andrew and I on his Monday night Facebook Live show, The Split Decision, we did a bracket of the best New York sports team never to win a championship. And one of the candidates was the 1985 Yankees who were managed first by Yogi Berra and then by Billy Martin after Yogi got fired in April, 97 and 64 missed out on the playoffs because that back then you just had to win one of the four divisions to get into the championship, but a really good team with Hall of Famers Winfield and Henderson in the outfield. Don Mattingly had one of his best years. Possibly their best pitcher. It may have been Ron Guidry, but possibly their best pitcher that year was Phil Necro at the age of 46, who won 16 games, had an ERA over four, and this was his last chance to win a World Series, and that was part of his reason for sticking around with the Yankees is that he really wanted to try and make it to finally make it to a World Series and maybe even win a championship. He knew that he probably and he does pitch for a couple more years after that, but not much, just a few games in 86 and 87. 
in that season in 85, he threw 220 innings at 46 years old. One of the crazy things to think about, and there's a book uh, about the 1985 season in New York called Doc, Donnie, the Kid, and Billy Ball by an author by the name of Joe Donnelly. And the book talks about both the Mets and the Yankees in 85 and how they were both sort of coming into their own. And at least for a while in August and September, there was some real talk that there might be a subway series. There would have been a potential world series game one matchup of doc Gooden, who I believe was, I think 21 that year. And that 85 was Gooden's best season as a pro throwing a hundred miles an hour on a consistent basis against 46-year-old Phil Necro, who was probably topping off at about 70 miles an hour, if that. There's only two other things I want to mention. One of the interesting things is that midway, or not even midway, but towards the very end of the 85 season to help them try and make a push for a pennant, the Yankees actually traded for Joe Necro, who was Phil Necro's brother, a another knuckleball specialist who was 40 years old at the time. So rare would it have been for a 40 year old pitcher, not to be the oldest on a staff, but his brother had him by a full six years. The other thing that I would note is that if you look at the Yankees Twitter page from a few days ago, when Necro passed away, there's a picture of him and it's a picture I'd seen before of him on the mound for the Yankees during those couple years in the 80s, the man looks 70 years old. Well, that's, and that's always the thing you see with, and I mean, he was in his late 40s or mid 40s, but you always see that with like pictures of Kenny Stabler, like late in his career on the Saints. And you're like, oh, he was an old man. And then you look at it, it's like, well, he retired when he was 38. So he had to be in his mid, like guys just looked a lot older, even back in the 70s or 80s. It's like, you know, <laughs> And I just was thinking, there are other guys. I mean, Brady's 42, and he's obviously an amazing physical escape. Nolan Ryan pitched into his mid-40s, even like Jesse Orozco. But I swear to you, and maybe it's because he had all his hair, but it was just entirely gray. Phil Necro looks like an old man at Old Timers Day, and yet he was one of the two or three best pitchers on a team that won 97 games. So a really, really unique career just crazy, a deserving Hall of Famer, a guy who known just as much probably for his longevity and for his quirks as for what type of pitcher he was, but a really interesting story to learn a little bit more about on the occasion of his death. And just to close up the longevity thing, never won a Cy Young, but finished in the top five or six a couple of times. And I'll read off the years of that. He finished second in the Cy Young in 1969 at 30. Then he finished third in the Cy Young at 19, in 1974 at 35. Then back-to-back years where he finished sixth in 78 and 79 at 39 and 40. And then in 82, finished fifth in the Cy Young at 43 years old. So finished in the top five in the Cy Young in 1969 and then in 1982, 13 years later. And the one he was the youngest of was 30. So, Wow. The ball and two strikes, two out, one pitch maybe away from win number 300. Historical moment. The Yankees ready to charge out. 
I hope they don't try to lift Negro up on their shoulders. At his age, he might fall. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us on this journey through the many individuals who passed away in the year 2020. We look forward to you all continuing as listeners of our show in the year 2021. And we hope you have enjoyed this three episode in memoriam journey to the many noteworthy figures in any number of sports who passed away in the year 2020. Until 2021, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.